persistence culture. Persistence, firm or obstinate continuance in a course of action in spite of difficulty or opposition. Culture, the customs, arts, social institutions, and achievements of a particular nation, people, or other social group. Keep moving. This is Persistence Culture Podcast. We are a lifestyle brand changing lives all over the world. I am your co-host, Mambo, and we got your host, Jason. What up, man? Yo, what's going on, bro? Well, I'm ready for another dope episode. Uh, What do we got today, man? It is definitely going to be a dope episode. We got an incredible guest lined up. He is an Olympian in the 400-meter hurdles. He is one half of the rap group Kids in the Hall. He's the host of Think Like a Rapper podcast. He is the culture marketing manager for Red Bull and somebody that I consider family well beyond the gym and the PC familia. We got Double O Mike Aguilar in the building for today's episode. What's up, bro? What's up, man? How are you doing? I am fantastic, I love, man. I'm still... I've become so obsessed with your radio voice. Thank you. Thank you, man. <laughs> you got it, bro. I'm I telling you. I keep telling him. That's what I told him. I was well, like, you well, thank it. you. I've done nothing to it. It just comes out that way. <laughs> Took no skill at it's all. A lot of, lot of tri-state area talk radio. It is true. It is true. Yeah, I listened to a lot of free beer and hot wings growing up, so I don't know if I channeled their uh, their voice or whatnot. But yeah, dude, I'm stoked to have you in the building, man. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you. to chop it up with you, man. And uh, I'm going to start off with the biggest thing of that intro, Olympian. I mean, I feel like that's upper echelon. I mean, that's not just something that they just hand out to people, you know? That's not they, a participation trophy, man. They do not. That is not a, that is a, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So I always have a weird uh, relationship with it because I felt like I should have done better, but as I've gotten older, you just have to kind of accept that those things happened and that's what it is. Yeah, and I mean, when you get to the Olympics, bro, I don't think there's much better to do than that. I mean, I understand from a performance standpoint, you obviously have goals and things like that, but I mean, just to get to the Olympics, I wanted to ask you, you know, how how did that start off? How did you start training for the Olympics? Like, when did you notice like, hey, I got a chance to do this? Um, <clears throat> as you'll find out through this podcast, much of my success I will attribute to delusion. potentially delusions of grandeur. Um, I started putting like the idea of the Olympics sort of just on the wall of things that I wanted to do. Not too long after I actually attended the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. So I had already been, I was in high school for a while, was already running track, was getting pretty good at it. And I think that going and seeing it and, uh, it becoming, at least as a spectator, becoming tangible was the first time that I was like, okay, maybe I can do this, you know? Um, I think at that time, so I had wrestled. That was my... Okay, you're (laughs) wrestling. Let's let's start at the beginning. Let's start at the beginning. So moving, we grew up... Well, you're pretty stocky, man. I could see you tossing some cats around. I was 124 pounds. Okay. Wow. (laughs) Um, So, you know... I moved to I moved to New Jersey, um, you know, not too long, at, like in the middle of uh, junior high school, basically. Uh-huh. And for whatever reason, I thought that I was good at basketball, not because I was good at basketball, but because I was from New York. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So I was like, man, New Jersey's got scrubs. I'll be yeah, fine. I'll be able to hoop up them Jersey cats, no problem. So I went there and. Made every foul shot in tryouts, but no other shots. Okay. Well, hey, free throws are important, man. And then you just drive the lane like a bull, man. Get to the free throw lane. Exactly. But the problem is back then, though, they didn't call them ticky-tack fouls, man. So, I mean, yeah. you had to get gooned to get uh, exactly. get to the line back then. And um, and so, yeah, didn't make the basketball team. <laughs> and, uh, you know, new school, trying to figure out how to fit in. Um, 
in Lakewood, New Jersey. And so for whatever reason, kind of like uh, wrestling was like this thing that I was like, oh, maybe I can do this. It's a, it's not a team sport. Yeah. Right. It's all individual. It's, it's just yep. based on me. And so started wrestling at the same time, one of the key figures in my life, uh, you know, entered in, which would be my high school track coach. He was also sort of, he was my gym coach. Okay. And he was the coach for, he was like the head of the summer park program that was yeah. like down the street from where I grew up. So coach Ridley, I would just always see him and he was always in my ear about running or just, you know, that's dope, man. coming out. Yeah. And I knew I was, I guess a little fast, but didn't really think much of it after that. And so wrestled, did well, but for whatever reason, had some fear of, in high school of contracting like a... Uh, Ringworm know. or something? Yeah, there was a lot of craziness. <laughs> Tends to be that, common in, in uh, wrestling, man, because it's those big-ass mats, bro. It's tough to clean them things. Yeah, yeah, and if you don't clean them right, you can get That's, who knows it's what. Any, funky, blo- bro. any blood-borne disease <laughs> yeah. you can get. For real. Um, and so, yeah, ninth grade, tried out... Um, for uh i knew i wanted to hurdle for for whatever reason and so that's what i was going to ask man how do you land on the 400 meter hurdles that's like the that's to me that's the toughest thing on the fucking slate man a 400 is bad enough and you're like well why don't i jump over these things while i run it that it sounds like fun me. it landed okay. on me i didn't land they usually <laughs> when i ran track that was it they picked the 400 meter hurdler and said hey you're running this shit well it was it was it's usually a very simple scenario it is if you can hurdle and you can hurdle enough in the sort of 110 hurdles or yeah. the 55 indoor. Um, and you can run a 400. Then yep. someone's going to approach you yeah. to run the 400. Hey, hurdles. Mike, why don't you try this? <laughs> yeah. And um, it was a little easier technically um, in the beginning because when you're running, even at high school, when you just start hurdling, it's not only to get over the hurdle is sort of the point of it, but yeah. you're also learning with the higher heights at the 110 meters, you have to technically really learn how to, you know, hurdle. And depending on how tall you are at that time, it, it's, it could it be, be a little bit. Yeah. So it took me a little while to get good at, at 110 hurdles. But for 400, I kind of picked it up a little bit faster because the hurdle is a little bit lower, to mm-hmm. be honest. Um, and so it, it becomes more of a can you make it through the 400 and 800 and hurdle? And so you end up doing that. And um through through high school kind of just did I did everything I wasn't simply just a, a hurdler I mean even though the 110s at that time was kind of my specialty I was a four by one four by two four by four they loaded you up yeah I was you know you're sucking down Gatorades at track meets man going into college I definitely contemplated um like being a decathlete but it uh the what I've it's funny because I had this discussion at the gym the other day uh-huh. at persistence is like mm-hmm. it's easier to um it's easier to I think become a decathlete if you start in the throws because there's a lot more technical stuff. What do you mean by the throws? Javelin, uh discus, shot put. The throwing events. Okay, yeah. got it. Um and so by by getting better at those things over the course of uh Were you I good at those high school career? No. <laughs> and, and I was going to say Because dude That shit you think is easy Like alright javelin I can just sprint as fast as I can And huck this yeah, thing But nope, <laughs> that nope. shit goes 10 yards yeah. And uh, and so yeah I wasn't Like I high jumped Through most of high school I uh, What'd you clear? Oh I don't remember Because I was the only person I think in all of New Jersey That still did the California roll and I don't Oh know really? You, you know okay. what California roll Yeah is. no I know what it is Yeah 
For the people who don't know, the California roll is most people go over the high jump over shoulders their back. first, right? Yeah. yeah. So they jump shoulders first. Uh, the California roll, which is perfected in <laughs> California, um, is you go if you start on the opposite side and you actually go shoulder and leg up first, and you're sort of barrel rolling over it with your chest touching the bar as opposed to your back. Um, but it has its limitations. And yeah, so I was going to say, you, after, can't, you can't hit like seven foot or yeah, seven exactly. six or something like exactly. that. Yeah. And so, yeah, so for me, it was just, again, a lot of stuff you, and you realize when you get older that a lot of the things, especially if you're in sports, um, you're just doing for, you know, to get points. Yeah. You're not actually doing because you technically want to be sort of good at it if you're faster than the other kids they're going to stick you in the 800 even if you're not an 800 meter runner exactly and um and then as you move through sort of the ranks on on onto college and 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 past college then you begin to specialize so like even in college 110 hurdles was what i focused on and then the 400 hurdles i ran intermittently um i do wish i would have run it more in college but it was one of those things where because i was still running the four by four and then sometimes the four by one and also the four by two. It's a lot of meters. Happened. Yeah, it was just a lot through the through the through the course of a meet, and um, and so when I got out uh, and came out to California, it was the first time that I was actually I could focus. Okay, so you were training for the Olympics in California. Yeah. What yeah. part of what part of Cali? Um, I ran for Santa Monica Track Club, uh, which is based in Santa Monica. They're based at Santa Monica College. Um, Santa Monica Track Club is split between uh, Santa Monica College, basically, and University of Houston, because all the sprinters... Okay, that's an odd combo. Well, all well, Carl Lewis ran Santa Monica Track Club, so all the sprinters were in, uh, were, would be in Houston for a while, and then they would come out to California to do some of their longer stuff, and then all the middle distance, uh, so all the very famous 4x4s that Santa Monica Track Club ran i think they had well you got carl lewis yeah you're gonna be pretty famous at it yeah they, but they, they had a they had a ton of 400 meter runners as well um that that got a bunch of olympic gold medals um, michael johnson no michael uh, johnson was my hero of the track and field world growing up man yeah. there's nobody i thought amazing. was cooler than michael johnson dude he was amazing that's a baylor guy i think he still trained at baylor when he was when he was uh when he was when working he was professional yeah. yeah um and so so yeah so <laughs> It's funny because I can't just tell the track story without also telling the music story. So we have to kind of weave them in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so at the same time that I was pursuing track, I, you know, and I did pretty well, Ivy League champion, um, conference champion, all that fun stuff. We in the 400 meter hurdles or just other events? No, the 110s the actually, 110s. mostly. Um, 110s and then... Um, so then your 100 has to be legit though because... I mean, if you're if you're listening, you're not too familiar with track terminology. 100 meters would be a one, basically one straight length of the whole track. Mm-hmm. So, I feel like if you're not extremely fast at the 100, then you're not going to be good at the 110. Because it's a it's a balance. I, I would say that there are because I've seen a lot of people run flat hundreds that are 110 meter hurdlers. And look at this. I think when you're really talking about track, especially at any level, but even at the more elite level, these are fractions of seconds. Oh, yeah. Like, the difference between someone running an 11 flat and 10, right, it doesn't sound like it's a lot because it's a second, yeah. but this is a, second is a huge. ton when it comes to speed. And, and you so, look like you got smoked. If you run an 11 and Mike <laughs> runs a 10, you got your ass smoked. Yeah, it's going to look bad it's, on tape. It's, uh, <laughs> it's real bad. It looks real bad. <laughs> 
Um, and so, yeah, so we're talking fractions, fractions of seconds. So, yes, someone who's running, who can run like a 10.6, 10.5, or, you know, even a 10.8 in the 100, but is tall enough and has the right, uh, you know, right hurdle sort of technique to smash through the hurdles. Even if someone runs a 10-2, but they're not good at hurdling, you know, yeah. there's going to be, it's going to be competitive in that space. So it isn't always just that you can flat out sort of run fast. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so at all this time that all this track stuff is happening, um, I happened to go to, so I'd been DJing probably since like, since Juice. So since 1993. Okay. <laughs> Basically, you know, at the same time I was trying to... Is that what inspired you first? Like a movie like Juice? Is that what made you like, damn, this it, is fly, I want to do this? In my, in my hero story that I tell, it is it, <laughs> it, it, it is it. But the reality is moving to New Jersey was a pivotal thing because you're now, you know, you're pulling... I feel like when it happens right after you finish, whenever you move or whenever you have a big transition, right after you sort of feel like you figured it out, even mm-hmm. as a child... You know, you leave elementary school and you're like, oh, I got my friends. I have like, I understand stuff. Yeah. And then it's just like, okay, now we're going to put you in this place where you know nobody. Start over. Exactly. And so I think a lot of my middle school into early high school was trying to figure out the ways in which I could stand out and be um, interesting in to yeah. myself and interesting to, I guess, sort of other people. Because up until that point, I had really defined myself around education you know like winning every science fair doing all that um and i was like yeah i'm going to mit i had my graduation present in sixth grade was to go to space camp and so it was like all damn you had stuff. it all mapped out yeah so everything was really sort of built around that and then as you turn into a teenager yeah and, and girls pop up and <laughs> priorities realize, change you know and yeah and and you want to be cooler and um you start dressing for yourself and thinking for yourself in very different ways. Space camp has, ain't as cool anymore. It, it isn't, but I wanted to, I wanted to be a more well-rounded yeah. person. And so I started DJing probably right around that time. My dad had been a DJ in my mind, but not necessarily like in practice. Like I never really watched him DJ, but whether when his family was around or when my um, mom was around, they'd sort of have conversations about, you know, how he used to DJ when I was younger. and but Okay, he, so dad was a DJ. Ish. Ish. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean. Living room DJ. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're talking late 70s. I don't even think he ever really had a mixer. It's Or, or if he did, it was like the knob mixers, uh-huh. you know. Um, but he was into music. And then when he had kids, it sort of. You know, tra- he decided or felt like he needed to transition out of. Well, they take that. up a lot of time, man. I mean, if, especially if it's just a hobby, you don't have as much time course, for hobbies. Of course. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, but there was always sort of like this mythology around him being into music. And uh-huh. he was also just very much, you know, Radio Shack existed at the time. So you'd always get like him trying to build new speakers, trying to figure out sort of like the audio. He was like more of an audiophile, okay. uh, I would say, than like a musician in, in any way, at least as I was growing up with him. And um, and so I was always interested in music, um, but I couldn't rap. I couldn't break dance. Um, I was drawing, but I never really got good at like Graffiti. tagging yeah. or doing any sort of... So, so you're running out of hip-hop angles. I got to run out of things to follow. Running out of hip-hop. The fashion stuff, I was slowly getting down. But um, yeah, DJing was kind of like the calling. And so started DJing, DJed through high school, 
it ended up being really weird. So what would you do in high school? Would you DJ people's parties or would you have your own parties or how, so, how did that work? So the way, so this is how it sort of ties back in. So like the, what happened honestly is for whatever reason, the guys who were like the guys yeah. um, that were to me, the coolest guy fully poloed out, uh, you know, the man in terms of high school, uh-huh. he also ran track and was also DJ. Okay. Right? And, and he had his whole little crew. So when I came in, I kind of got from both sides, was able to get like, Oh, I have this, I can build this relationship through track. Cause I'm like the young guy there. But then if he was doing like a backyard party at somebody's place, I would um, tag along, <clears throat> try to open and do things like that. But then I somehow got a job. Where I was like a, uh, I was a, basically a wedding DJ. Um, oh yeah, because back then you in high have, school in high school because back Damn. then what you'd have is you know the the old school wedding DJ with the CD setup, not CDJs, but like straight like the Denon terrible CD setup. And okay, I don't know nothing about that. Yeah, but. it's like imagine basically two CD players, like personal CD players, and, and that's how you have the mixer. Mix. Yeah, okay, and um. And they would be more of an MC than they were a DJ because their whole thing was like they are the entertainment for a the wedding, whole party or for whatever, a wedding yeah. reception and they have all their little call outs and all the things that they need to do. And so I was basically the person that was technically DJing. And they would go through the, they would be on the mic. Doing oh, okay. The You'd be doing the mixing and the music and they yeah. would be on the mic controlling the party exactly. and whatnot. Okay. And so there was a few, you know, there was a few of those DJed a couple uh, high school dances um, was always DJing sort of in the basement, you know, just making blend tapes with my friends, people coming in and rapping over instrumentals, that sort of stuff. What was your favorite, what was your favorite stuff to spin back then? I mean, it was always hip hop. I mean, New Jersey is interesting because house music is as, as important yeah. as, as hip hop is. And so a lot of my blends, when you start, you really start because it's maybe easier, uh, you know, just in terms of tempo and beat matching, to really like blend, learn how to blend really well with house. Cause you're doing these really long blends, these, you know, things that might take uh, a minute to transition between songs. And so there was always this space cause there was always a part of the party that would turn into house. Like it'd be like, Oh, now it's time to play. You know, there's some hoes in this house. There's like all the classic Baltimore, Jersey, New York, Chicago, Detroit. Club yeah. That tri-state area. And yeah. yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, so that was basically the game that I, the, the two places that I played in as well as like dance hall, which was really big at the time. And, um, and yeah, so when I got to, when I got to college, um, another transition happens because you're like, ah, oh, just when I figured out how to be the man in high school, you know, now I'm starting over again, <laughs> state champ in, in, uh, at indoor 400 in, uh, what'd you run? No clue. What was it? It had to be a state champ. You got to be like sub fifty or something like that. Yeah, it was, but it was also like I ran it from the second heat because they didn't even realize that I was gonna. Nice, win. you yeah. won state champs from the second heat. That's exactly. gangster, bro. Um, and so, so yeah, so kind of came in being recruited, all of that stuff from there, and it was like, okay, cool. I'm gonna come here. I know how to DJ. I'm gonna just do all this, and then got to to Penn and immediately it was like, Oh no, it's starting all over again. Cause there's already a bunch of upperclassmen that are already 
they're already solidified. This, they're exactly. faster. They're stronger. They've been just lifting weights and running for the last three years. So yeah, but even, but even just on the on the music tip. Oh, okay. Whole, there was a whole world. Man, so, so music and track were kind of correlated for you then. It was always yeah, always. It was always sort of this these competing themes in my life, and so um, track stuff was going eh, not as good as it needed to because my hurdle coach who recruited me uh, quit and went to Cornell like oh, shit. midway in between the first season. Yeah, exactly. Damn. That's it's a terrible. What was it like getting recruited then? So it was is I've always wondered now I was never a good enough athlete where anybody wanted to recruit me for anything, mm-hmm. let alone uh, let alone a collegiate recruit. Um, what what's it like? Is that coach really the main guy that sold you on Penn? Cuz I so we we've talked a bunch. So I know you went to Penn. Anybody listening uh, Mike went to to Penn, which is the Ivy League school. Yeah, University of Pennsylvania, not Penn State. Yeah, <laughs> legit Quakers right here in the house. Mm-hmm. And uh, did that coach? Is he the one that convinced you to go to Penn? Did you have like a couple, a few written down? You know, did you have top choices? And this guy sold it, or yeah, I mean, you know, without getting into too much inside baseball on sports, uh, New Jersey is in an interesting place when it comes to recruiting because, especially in the Ivy League, because Princeton is in the state. Yeah, it's right there. But then you have columbia in new york and you have penn right there and so they're all competing i mean even harvard and everything is is still close enough i mean it's all yeah but there's like so penn and princeton have always had a rivalry because of how close they are but now they also have a rivalry when it comes to recruiting for people so i would say that like i never even thought about the ivy league Mm -hmm. you know it's the same it's almost the same thing as the olympics like i was running track I was really focused on sort of the competition. I had kind of like this guy, my homie CJ, who was like my main, he ran for Manchester and he was like, our, we were the main competitors against each other. At Manchester, another high school right there that yeah. would run with Lakewood. Yeah. And so like we were sort of always going back and forth um, in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of just competition. Trying to beat each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he definitely was a better hurdler than I was earlier. Um, and I so am. he smashed me, you know, through my first couple of years. And then did like CJ junior, make the Olympics? Uh, no, no, right. no, no, no. But he went to, he went to South Carolina and he became a decathlete actually. Oh, okay. So he, he switched it up. And, um, and so, so yeah, so it was interesting because when I went to Penn Relays for the first time, I remember telling one of my homies, I was like, oh man, you know, like I could go to school here because Penn Relays will sell you the dream. Oh, yeah. As the gr- well, Penn Relays is big time. I mean, I know yeah. what it is and I wasn't that deep in the track. Yeah, but for like, for to give you an idea, uh, everybody, the Penn Relays is, it's, you could say it's just a regular sort of like large track event, but it's basically bringing the best people, especially in high school, um, from around the world and a lot of the Caribbean islands, uh, into one stadium on the University of Pennsylvania's campus. So I think you get an extra 100,000 people in, um, in Philly for that weekend. And it's a, it's a weekend that happens. Um, but it's crazy because the entire Jamaican team will come and they'll just set up shop and then you can, you know, you'll hear... Jamaicans don't fuck around either. They're fast, yeah. bro. But there's a, there's, a, there's a huge party element attached to it. It's Hell not yeah. simply just the event. It's like Penn Relay, Week, Penn Relay Weekend has nothing but club parties, all of this. So it makes, especially a school like University of Pennsylvania, that is much stiffer normally. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't think of Penn as like a party school, for sure. Yeah, but. it makes it the craziest place on earth for three days. Hell yeah. And I remember, yeah, sophomore year of high school, like, oh man, this is it, you know, whatever. I just need to go here. And my friend was like, you know, this is the Ivy League school, right? And I was just like, oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> so I just thought it was over. Um, 
But then, the, well, were your grades slipping then? I mean, no, not at all. I never had bad grades. Yeah. It was just I didn't. I did not. You know, I'm my 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 mom is is Belizean. My dad is from Belize City, and like, you know, education is important. So that was yeah. going to happen. But um, the idea that you could kind of just go from like the Ivy League was just not. It was just not in in my even realm of possibility. Yeah. It just wasn't even in my head because of either a, the cost or just like no one really having those conversations about it. Yeah. And so, um, so soon, not too long after that, a year after that conversation with my homie at Penn relays, my coach got a letter in the mail from Princeton, you know, like an interest letter. Okay. Yeah. And that was probably, you know, that letter changed not just my trajectory, but also even my brother's trajectory in life. Because once that letter came in, it was like, oh, this is an option. Like yeah. it wasn't before. I think I would have, you know, in my head, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go to Rutgers. Rutgers, baby. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's kind of the typical sort of like, oh, yeah. yeah that's you're in Jersey, go. you're a smart kid. You play, you play sports. Yeah. You, go to, you go to Rutgers unless you're really good. Then you bail on yeah, Rutgers. And, and so, you're, so that was the first time where I was like, oh, this is an option. And, um, and then when I won... The uh, I won the, the indoor 400 at Princeton. So mm-hmm. the Princeton coach is there, Penn coach is there. And so then kind of like the, you know, those sort of... They're going to compete for you now. Yeah, those further conversations started and then a lot of other, um, you know, just a lot of the... It's a lot of letters. It's a lot of phone calls. No steak people. dinners or nothing? Um, did I have... I feel like I did, but I just don't really remember it. But it was a lot was of... It it impactful? Was a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a lot of a lot of that. It was a lot of like, uh, it's not going to be at the level of a basketball or a football. Yeah, there's um, just not that much juice in the track program for yeah, them to spend that but, kind of money. But but they, you know, I went up, I did my visits at Princeton and at Penn. You know, uh, you go and you stay for the for a couple of days and and do that, and that was fun. Um, nothing to write home about. And uh, yeah, I kind of got a sense of of the schools. I immediately felt a little bit. From from since I moved from New York, I wanted to kind of get back to a city. Um, there was always something that I felt like I was missing out on. Not really, you know. Lakewood wasn't popping enough for you. <laughs> it was not. I mean, you know, Seaside and uh, Seaside's and the, all right in the summertime, man. And the Jersey Shore being close was definitely a fun experience. But it, you know, you couldn't walk to a bodega. You couldn't sort of do that stuff. Yeah. And so, so yeah. So the city was calling me a little bit. Um, but then I had applied early to Princeton and Princeton waitlisted me. So that was a whole other, that was just yeah. like, oh, okay. They just shined you right from yeah. the jump. Yeah. So you slighted me, <laughs> forget it then. Um, and then, you know, University of Maryland was another like really top, like I actually really wanted to go there. The Terps, uh, that'd be a cool spot to go, man. Well, the campus looks bitching. Yeah, Ronaldo Nehemiah, who was like run some, I mean, he's hit a bunch of like world times early in, in the early 80s was a high school I mean was a uh, track coach, hurdle coach there yeah and so I thought a lot about that but I really wanted this balance between sort of the education piece and the track piece and and the thing about Princeton Penn Harvard really like those two and then sometimes Yale but like for most of most of it their sports programs are actually pretty strong like they're D1 they're they're going to get to compete against um, you know I mean I don't know, not that it happens all the time, but I mean, you know, the basketball team makes it to the to the tournament frequently enough. Typically, yeah, at least you know? enough. They're not forgotten about for yeah. decades or nothing. And so, um, 
So that was kind of, it sealed the deal. But when I went there, everything went back to square one. Um, and when I talk about those people that were above me, that were sort of like, you know, whatever, that like that were the, the upperclassmen. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about uh, John Legend. You know, okay. we're talking about. Um, he was on the track team at Penn? No, 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 no. I'm oh. just talking, I'm talking about the music people. Okay. That were above me. Sorry, I keep flipping back and forth between music and track. <laughs> yeah, because um, these things are, like I said, they're intertwined. Yeah. Um, yeah. You you had this you had this music community that was already very well established there. Um, there was a group by the name of Dugius that is essentially Penn's version of the Roots, but most of those okay. people would go on to become um, members of like the Dap Kings or the Menhen Street Band and like all this the really dope Brooklyn stuff that supported Amy Winehouse and um, Sharon. Uh, why did I forget her last name? Sharon something in the Dap Kings. I can't remember. Yeah. Sharon and uh, Dap Kings. Yeah. Um, and also most famously sampled by uh, Jay-Z for Rock Boys. Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. Um, and so you had that happening there. And then you had... Uh, this John, is all happening on the Penn campus. On the Penn campus. Of. John Stevens at the time. Um, well, that's got to make you feel pretty motivated. Like, hey, there's some legit well, connections but here. there weren't people. anybody. They weren't anybody yet, but you could, I mean, you could probably tell no, the talent. You no, <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, John Stevens, you know, was, you know, a crooner who was a part of acapella groups that played, uh, you know, he would play the piano in the basement when we were doing, like, if I was going to DJ something and then there would be like the cool spoken word part, yeah. you know, but you knew what was interesting that was happening at the time. And I think this actually happens across the board, especially at Penn is there was this feeling that um, there was an audaciousness that you could actually accomplish things that that people maybe had said that you couldn't do before. Yeah, now they I seem mean, possible. Yeah, like that was the big thing at Penn. Penn's big thing, especially in the interview process, was like say yes and then buy the book later. So it's okay. like, you know, like really just kind of like go for it and then you're smart enough to figure it out after that point. And this was a full ride for you through athletics? No, there's, no, or? there's no full rides at Ivy League schools. No? No, no. Really? So they, everybody they pays at Ivy League schools? It would school? be over. It would, the Ivy League would, would win everything because if you could give a scholarship to the best school in the country, then you would have... You so have, it's literally, they're not allowed to do it? No, they can't. There was a ruling that happened in the 50s because all the, like Harvard especially, was smashing everybody in football. Like just killing, destroying the entire country. <laughs> I guess it makes sense now when, when I'm thinking it from that aspect. Yeah. It's like, I always wondered why they weren't that, <laughs> weren't that good at, at yeah, football so, and basketball. I mean, they're okay, like you said, but... You, you have to get a certain kind of student. And to be honest, the, the Ivy League was really smart about getting... Uh, foreign players early before everyone figured it out because they were the people that could offer. Well, they're the Ivy League, man. They're smarter than everybody. Well, they could offer, they could offer the, obviously you get a great education and you're going to be able to be competitive. So we yeah. have a lot of like, you know, guys coming from whether it be African countries or Eastern European countries that'd be like seven feet tall, but also did really well in school. And so they're looking yeah. at it as they're hedging their bets. Yeah. Um, they get a center for the basketball team and yeah. uh, nobody knows who he is. So, yeah. And so, you know, we, yeah, we, it was an interesting experience there um, because all of that is happening on campus um, at the same time that all the track and stuff is happening. And so eventually I figure the track stuff out, start to get better at it, got a new coach. Uh, and I start, I started realizing I needed to say no more to not really get used as a, 
as a horse, basically, where yeah. they put you in every Stick you in a 200. Yeah. Hey, Mike, run the 200 today. Yeah. And so um, so that started to kind of coalesce in, in those ideas about, like, the next so at that time, level. were you thinking to come full circle to I, where it started? The Olympics, were you thinking that then? I don't know if I was still, if I was really thinking about it. That's, I think it, it still was just like, well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, so then how did you go to Santa Monica, though? Well, what? Because, this is, because this is where the music piece comes in. So my, there was a, uh, another student that was a rapper in my year. And for whatever reason, I just decided that I was going to be, after listening to like one of his freestyle tapes or something like that that I was going to become a producer like I was just like yeah, I'm, okay. I've been DJing for this amount of time I love rocking parties but I'm gonna start making music and so that was what we set out on so at this moment you hadn't made any music you were just you I were just yeah. mixing and DJing yeah I didn't start producing until the summer after my freshman year and then what was great is because of people like John Legend John Stevens on campus Dugius. There was another um, guy, uh, Brian Peterson. They would like the older guys. They were coming back with like twelve inches printed up or CDs printed up and selling them on campus. Okay, and so it was like, oh, this is kind of where I was talking about the audacity comes in. And you're like, oh, you can go and record this thing in your dorm and then go get it made. Like, it, yeah. you know, like everyone. Oftentimes, people do not. Um take the leaps that they need to because they just don't think that they can like they because they they haven't really processed it like oh yeah no you can just go and do that yeah like it's just it's like oh you want to you just gotta try yeah or just or even know that it's a tell yourself that you you can do it um, i think, I think give they, yourself permission they think it's harder than what it really is so they they don't take that next step yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and um and and it's really and it wasn't and I was like oh okay so how did that work how'd you get that twelve inch made how'd you get that you know and so my friend and I put together this idea that's like okay we're gonna when you say twelve inch you're talking about a vinyl record yes, right yes so like and that was like especially back then you're like this is a big tangible thing you got yeah. this crazy artwork made this is a heavy physical thing like yeah. burning a CD kind of was understood because you could do that in your own yeah computer. your own house or whatever yeah but to get a twelve inch made it was like whoa that's you're Actually, big time now. You're somebody, yeah. you know? Hell yeah. yeah. And um, and so that led me down that path of really sort of exploring music. I came up with this idea that my friend and I were like, yo, we got to make an album before we get out of college. And um, and so that was kind of what I set on. Track was doing well, um, but it wasn't as much of a focus as the music stuff was. I ended up getting into the, um, there was Sony Music used to have a minority internship program during the summers and so got into it in between junior and senior year and that was just the the light bulb like it took me two hours on the bus to get from Lakewood into the city to work every day and two hours back but it was like when I was there I was like this is what I want to do every day like it was just no. it was a, a, a quick because it I got to be in the studio with Beyonce Missy like all of these people just as just as like a studio rat, like go get this, go grab this, go get the food, yeah, go do okay. all of that. For a time frame, what what year is this when when you're with these people? Oh, okay, two thousand. So if we need a music time frame, think Destiny's Child, Independent Woman. Um, think when Missy was starting her label. Uh, so Miss Jade, PD Pablo, um, R. Kelly had Changing Faces. 
Swiss Beats would be down there. And this is all this is all at Sony while yeah, you're interning. Jessica's. That's got to be big though, like for you to see these people and be like, it, it oh was, shit, I here mean, I am. Yeah, you know, it was it was insane and it was transformative. And then also at the time, I'd been making beats on this really like rinky dink thing called a Yamaha QI70. It was like a. It's funny now because everyone loves to make like talk about making beats on their iPad or whatever. But this was like the first like all in one. You could play the keys on your thumb sort of stuff. It had batteries and headphones, and I would just be sitting there just banging stuff. <laughs> yeah. Out. yeah. Um, and then when I got there, one of the guys was like, "Yo, if you want to really take this seriously, you got to learn about an MPC. You got to learn about an SP twelve hundred. Like you have to learn about these tools. Teaching you these the equipment, the professional tools. Yeah. So when I wasn't in a studio or getting somebody's uh, McDonald's, <laughs> I could, <laughs> I could just use the equipment. I was just our office was the equipment room." So we, I could just pull something off the shelf and, and start fucking around load a CD. Yeah. So I started getting floppies and things like that. And just like chopping my own samples, figuring out stuff on there. And, um, and so, yeah, so that, so when I came back senior year, um, that was like, oh, like, this is what I'm intent on doing. Um, what was the weirdest request you got from someone while you're interning? Oh man. So I told, and again, this is just me having balls that I shouldn't have had back then. <laughs> I told the guy who was hiring me, I was like, I am not degrading myself in any way to do this job. So like there are certain things I'm not going to do. You're not going to walk to like uh, from from Brooklyn to Queens to get a puff daddy, a a slice of cheesecake, goat milk. (laughs) So there was a request. um, There were a few. So these are hilarious requests. So at the time, Rodney Jerkins had just got a $62 million deal from um, Sony. Damn. It was like a production deal for everything. Because he had just he had just finished working on the Michael Jackson album. And then it was like Jessica Simpson, Jennifer Lopez. So they just were like, here's a bunch of money. Make just us, do it all. Make us a bunch of yeah. money. And he would not leave his hotel because he couldn't find his belt. <laughs> so, like pants belt. Yes. So he told, like, so they can just call the studio and tell what we that they need. And so, yeah, one of my coworkers had to go and find a belt, but not just like a regular. I was belt, gonna say like he a, probably wants a dope ass belt. Yeah, yeah like just a belt take, from, take from one this from very Penny. specific place, and it was like this whole thing. And I remember being like, "I'm not doing that." Um, but it came back to bite me in the ass because then my last two days at uh, when I was working that internship. They sent me on two rides to go pick up a CD to bring back. They sent me to Rodney Jerkin studio in Atlantic City. Oh, damn. <laughs> so I had to go from New York, 56th Street, get in a car. That's a ride. Drive man. two and a half hours, two hours there and back yeah. to then just drop a CD off just, to then have to go home after that. And they were just like, yeah, we're going to get you for, just for yeah. this other shit. Um but it was still, for whatever reason, I loved the experience. Yeah, like, hell yeah, man. I'm in bed, the, dude. The, the times that I would just sleep in. Sony used to have this room, a little bit smaller than this, that was basically a car that they they made look and sound and feel like a car stereo system, except it was extremely well acoustically treated and was like a studio in the car. And so I would just like crash in the back seat. And okay, that's pretty dope. Wait, so what, people know. would record in there then or they would no, shoot? No, 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 like- they, they would test it. They would test their, they would test their. Oh, their dope. Okay, yeah. shit. Yeah, I didn't even, I even think that far into it. <laughs> yeah, so you would, you know, you got to test every every mix in the car. So, so that's they have like they a little go. system in there and stuff? They oh, yeah, tw- yeah. They had some 12s in the trunk or what? Yeah, the original version of P.D. Pablo. Take um, your shirt off? Yeah. Or raise he, up? He blew up 
the system in there. He blew, <laughs> just the, blew, system, the, speakers blew the speakers out. Um, I used to try and blow my speakers to that song yeah, too, though, bro. That was yeah. a, that was a fire one from yeah. Petey, man. Uh, this was this was before Timberland got involved, so it was a totally different beat. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, and yeah, and and so yeah, like I said, amazing experience, rubbing shoulders with literally, you know, icons, right? Like being, yeah, man, being in the being in the studio, eating Jamaican food with you know with Kelly and Beyonce and their mom, and like, you ain't thinking much about running hurdles at that at that point in time. No, not at all. <laughs> but. So yeah, so got bitten by the bug. Um, there was a kid that I met right before all of that began that had come up because he decided he might want to go to Penn. His name was Jabari Evans, aka Knowledge. He was still in high the school. The other half of kids, kids in, in the hall. Of the kids in the hall, and um, you know, everyone was basically being like, everyone ex- was pointing him to me basically saying like, oh, if you're into music and you rap, like this is the person that you should be talking to. So he was a rapper looking for a producer. You were a producer looking for a rapper kind of deal? He was just a kid looking for, uh, just like who are the people on campus that do music? Yeah, okay. Like it wasn't even, I already had my, so myself and another artist that people may know now named Homeboy Sandman, um, Angel, who's at Penn as well, uh, you know, like, we had already, everybody, we had already built our crew. It's the same thing that happens. You know, like you come in, you're a freshman, you have no clue what's going on. By the time you get to junior year, you've sort of figured a little bit out. You got your click or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So we were the upperclassmen. Knowledge was the potential, you know, freshman. And so, yeah, sent me, got his Yahoo email at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we had a couple conversations. And um, when I, as soon as I got out of, of uh, you know, of working at Sony, going back to senior year, boom, he comes in. And so he just comes into like the well-oiled machine of our, we're going to make an album this year. And so he got to kind of come in, jumped on a couple records. And yeah, that was sort of where that relationship began. And then when where I, were you guys rec- recording all this oh at? In your, dorm, in your dorm room or what? So I had got a place off campus and I had a towel closet <laughs> that was like, it was like an old place that in between my bedroom and the bathroom, there was this giant towel. It was basically a walk-in, walk-in closet. closet. Yeah. And like we were talking about before, those good old moving blankets. Moving blankets will save your life, everybody. I'm telling you. Always, <laughs> you think you don't need them when you're moving. After you're moving, you will, especially if you're recording. Just always put them up. I tell every single young artist who's like, I don't have a studio. I don't have that. I was like, do you have an iPhone? And can you get some moving blankets? Or can you get in your closet? <laughs> then you can make a record. You got a studio. I've had that conversation yeah. with you in the past. Yeah. That's <laughs> it's like, you can same a, combo. You can make a record and I don't want to hear anything about it. So yeah, so like literally we just, recorded in the in the closet i was i would be so tired sometimes i had perfected the ability to lay on my bed basically be half asleep and learned all of the pro tools hotkeys so i could just record punch in punch out all of that just (laughs) fully laying laid out nice and um and so yeah so we made that record knowledge was a part of it um homeboy sandman my friend jeff who was kind of like the main rapper i was working with at the time graduated and basically that summer, it was like, okay, what are we doing? So my friend G and I, uh, who lived in Carson, California, he was like, come out to LA. Let's see if we can make some things happen. He had some connects in the music industry. So this is while you're still in college then? No, this is right after. Right after. You just right graduated. After. Yeah, just graduated. Okay. And so I, <laughs> this story is going to be too long and too ridiculous. <laughs> okay. So somehow one of my other friends who played football, at Penn. At Penn. Was from Elizabeth, New Jersey. Okay, straight out of Elizabeth. All right. He had his he had neighbors across the street, an older Muslim couple 
uh-huh. right, that had built a studio in their backyard. In Elizabeth. Uh, in Elizabeth. Just I can believe it. to like make new child stars. It was weird because she, that was, part's the, weird. she was the receptionist at the high school. And so, like, she just had access to kids, and kids would come in and be <laughs> that like, sounds weird, bro. they would come in and be like, I want to sing, I want to do whatever. So, she was kind of like trying to start a label or trying to find a Britney Spears or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, okay. or an Ashanti yeah, or at the whoever. Time. Yeah, uh-huh. that's who it probably was. <laughs> um, and so, somehow, he was like, Yo, the studio across the street, you should go. So, he connected me and. Not only did I get a studio, but eventually I got a job as a substitute teacher because I needed it because the studio <laughs> didn't make any money. So that first, you know, sort of semester from that September to December, uh, right after I graduated, I would just go and, and teach, basically. What were you teaching? Oh, man. Um, I was doing, I was, it was like, you know, sixth grade. So it's like a multi, you know, you're stop, you're not yet little everything, like, little yeah, social like, studies oh, and I'm doing like, just yeah, history. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. a little bit of everything. And so I would go do that, get out of, get out of class, come straight to Miss Muhammad's, you know, back in the studio, <laughs> back in the and weird then, child studio. Yeah. The and then we would just like, if I either would either record one of the artists that she wanted me to work on, or I just had studio time to like make. So then knowledge would come up, friends would come up. Um, there was a there was a few artists at the time that I was working with uh, a singer by the name of Aliyah, one of my friends Idara Victor, who's now an amazing actress and you know just killing it. And so they would all just sort of come in and we would just work. And then I would this comes back to and this comes back to the, the what I always love about the theme of sort of like whether it be persistence culture or whatever is like you have to. You have to be a little crazy for it to me for a certain level of success, but you know you have to give yourself permission to uh, to fail because it makes it then much easier to sort of Take strive risks. and do those things. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, like, I would literally, and this is this is what always when people come and they ask, like, "Oh, how do you do this?" Like, I was straight cold calling A and R's. Yeah, just straight asking. In, a, in the dorm room, or I would just cold call a and be like, yo, I got so-and-so, it's the dopest thing ever. And they'd be like, okay, cool, uh, 10 a.m. on uh, Wednesday, you want to come through and play something? I was just like, how did this happen? It yeah, it just worked out that easy. <laughs> yeah, like, it literally shouldn't have happened, but it did. And uh, and so, for whatever reason, I was, so I was building this sort of thing where I would make some records, take them to New York, play for people. At the time, John and essentially who was his partner, who also happened to be Kanye's cousin, Devo Springsteen, um, Devon Harris. He had also gone to Penn, and he was... Damn, I didn't know Penn was so was so tied to the music game, bro. They had some names I, there. It, it was it was literally, there are two eras where... Well, Sylvia Rohn also went to Penn, too. But um, there's like these, this weird, weird window, and the window is kind of like the one that I'm talking about, where you just happen to have, like I said, like to have Snoop's manager, Ted Chung, there, to have John there, to have Devo who's like, you know, was John's roommate, but then also, oh yeah, my cousin Kanye, he, you know, guy raps sometimes, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and all of that was just, it, and to be in Philly at the time when like the Roots was really, were really doing stuff. Even State Philly. Property too back then too. I mean, Philly Absol- was, Philly was cracking Freeway, with the hip hop. Yeah, Andy I mean, Siegel, they're on fire. Like everything. Yeah. And so there was always these connections happening. Um Somehow, some way, you you knew a girl that knew Beanie's manager. You knew, you know, like there was there's always, connections exactly. And so, through all of that, I ended up coming out to uh, California for 
December, basically like a winter break and stayed at my friend's house in Carson. And we went to, <laughs> so we did our like label thing. Like we're just going around playing records, going around playing records. Like, and then at the time. So where you just walk up to like a radio station with your record and be like, no, yo, we, can no, you spin this, this for no, us? No, no, what? no, radio. This is all label stuff. This is all straight A&R meetings. Oh, okay. Sign us. Or signed Knowledge at the time. Because Knowledge was basically a solo artist that I produced for. Gotcha. Um, and then I had, you know, singers. It was like this whole thing. I was bringing them basically like, I have this label. Like, just sign yeah. us. Um, and then we ended up meeting, we ended up getting in with uh, 310 Motors. I don't know if you remember 310 Motors. Do you remember I, 310? I don't. I, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So 310 Motors at the time had become what sort of like West Coast Customs or what uh, Platinum, if you're into fancy cars are in LA now. Okay. And so they were the um, audio, I mean, they were the auto sort of like aftermarket. Uh, like tricking out rides and whatnot. Exactly. Yeah. And so you would go there and you'd get your stuff crazy or you'd specialty order your car from them and you get, you know, everyone wanted the 310 uh, license plate. It was this big thing. So. Man, you're bringing back memories. Right now. <laughs> yeah, <I'm sorry. laughs> Old man stories. Hey, yep. forever. <laughs> and so, uh, so they were starting a record label. And so they loved knowledge. And so it was like, they were like, yeah, we think we want to work with them. Uh, when do you think we can get them out here? Whatever. So in my head, I'm like, oh, this is it. Yeah. This is the move. So I just pack everything up and move out to LA with like 2,500 bucks after a single conversation and nothing <laughs> on paper. And you know how that went. Hey, you got to jump, man. <laughs> you do. You do. And I jumped a whole bunch. So, <laughs> so I get out to LA and... Obviously, 310, we ended up meeting with the guy who was running the label. And of course, his priority was his boys. Yeah. Like he had a group that he's he already got the artists that exactly. he wants. Yeah. So, we, so I was just out here. And then I was trying to figure out what to do, but I wasn't willing to take, like, say, oh, I failed, time to go back home. So I just started trying to figure out anyway, anyway. You know, we were just recording in Carson. Um, in my friend's garage, we built out a studio there, went to Home Depot with his, uh, with his stepfather. And like, actually this time I was like, you know what, I'm going to build a booth for real. So we like built a booth yeah. and we were just, you know, all the neighborhood homies that were, that needed to get their, you know, records made whatever, and selling. Yeah. But it was amazing for me because this is where I start to, I think the East coast, um, didn't at that time, didn't really understand the the independent the main mentality the same way the West Coast did. Like they already knew I can go and make this and then I can go to every single and pitch mom it myself. and pop yeah. record shop and say like, yo, this is what this is. This is what this is. And like, do you want to buy it? It's got SIBO on it. It's got, yep. you know, like you, you would go get like a corrupt verse and uh -huh. then you'd go get uh, maybe a Daz beat and you'd have just enough that you could just walk into a store and be like, yo, cop, 15 of these, 20 of these at whatever price. And then you can you know, sell them for you'd sell them. Yeah. And so I love that because that's where I really started cutting my teeth on like understanding like, Oh, okay. This doesn't have to be an industry thing. This can be a, you can actually do this. You can yourself. do it independently. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so eventually ran out of that 2,500, although I made it stretch for a really long time um, and had to get a job. And so I, this was, this was like not a recession that we had in 2008, but it, the, the dot-com boom had happened, the first one, and it was like not really good to get it, easy to get a job. So I ended up working at T-Mobile. Okay. So I'm working at T-Mobile, but the closest T-Mobile I could get, I was staying in Long Beach at the time, and the closest T-Mobile I could get to was in the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica. 
Shit, bro, that's a drive. It's going to take you two hours was, to get to my car. And I had no car. Oh, shit. So I would take the blue line to the, they have like a, a rapid bus on Wilshire from downtown that like skips a bunch of stops, whatever. So that's what I was taking. So all the way, so first I would go to Westwood. And this is kind of where the track thing comes back in. So I'm going to Westwood every day. Right? Yeah. Going to Westwood every day, working. And UCLA track is right there. So at that point, I was basically like, okay, I gave music like six or seven months. It's not really panning out in the way that I thought it would. Yeah. Did you run for all four years? So your eligibility to like run track yeah, somewhere is yeah. done. No, that's no, out no, the that's window. Done. But I wasn't even really thinking about in that space. I was just yeah. kind of like, well, let me see what is going on because track was home. Like track is an easy track. Was Were you staying in shape? Were you still running no, at all? No, 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 no. Track was the thing to go back to that I understood and I understood I was also good at. So it yeah. was like getting beat up by the music industry in New York and L.A. had taken its first little toll. So I was like, OK, let me go see what's going on. So I start um, just going to the UCLA track, just and sort of going through old workouts. Oh, just going there and running just training by myself. So you could just straight roll up to the track there and run? They have open, yeah, they have oh, open Oh, they have days. like open hours? Okay. Um, open hours. And so I'm there, and then I run into a coach, because I see him training somebody in 400 meter hurdles. Um, and I started talking to him, like, hey, you know, I'm from whatever, Penn, was this, this, and that, trying to find a place to train, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. He happened to be uh, a Felix Sanchez coach. Felix Sanchez at the time was the number one 400 meter hurdler in the world. I know him, yeah. I- <laughs> and, and so he was like, well, I have Felix, and then I have... Um, there was another guy that he was training. I don't like to keep a lot of people. Yeah. So he was like, but there's this guy, Santa Monica, Joe Douglas, you should give him a call. And, uh, and so, yeah, I called him and he called me. He was like, yeah, meet us here at three 30. And nope. so then I just sort of, I, I shifted back where track became a little bit of the main focus. Was it um, hard training at this time? Cause that's when one thing I wanted to ask you, like, you're training there, so now you're in Santa Monica. You're going to start picking up training again. What type of training are you doing compared to the type of training you're doing at Persistence Culture now? Is it like two complete opposite ends of the spectrum? No, I would say that what I love about Persistence and the reason why it keeps me going every week, even though it's a terrible uh, feeling sometimes at the end of it. Is <laughs> Bro, that, my back is still tight from 21 too, dude. I still yeah. don't think I'm is fully recovered. It is... It is um, you know, sim- it's similar training. You know, obviously there's not the amount of running. Yeah. But I would say some days like, don't. If Gage is listening to that, he's gonna change. He's gonna change it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That day, that there was that day I think where we had it was a uh, like box step overs and then a four hundred and within yep. three minutes or two minutes. <laughs> yeah, like an interval time. Yeah, terrible. <laughs> but um, yeah, it brings it. It it really brings it back. It takes it. Sometimes I think a. Like I said, you need to be okay with failure. Yeah, definitely. You know? Definitely. Like, a, yeah. CrossFit, it's, it's going to humble you. Because it's a, uh, it's always, it can always be a learning experience, you know? And so that's what I love about it is because I can just accept that I'm going to walk into this place. I'm going to get punched in the stomach or in the <laughs> chest and I'm going to come out of it at a better person. Yeah, down totally. Line, you know, like I know that. It's not going to feel great the first day or the second day or the 20th day. But having had the relationship with sport um, that you know that like over the course of time is when it's really going to benefit you. um, That has been an extremely important sort of part of 
making it a part of my life. Yeah, totally. I can agree with that. So, yeah. so Joe Douglas whipped you into shape then? So or? Joe Douglas definitely whipped me in. Um, we, yeah, we started, we were training, we were training in Santa Monica, um, around San Vicente basically. And then at a certain point we would go to the track and at the same exact time that that starts happening, the day that I started working at T-Mobile was the day that the T-Mobile sidekick came out. Oh, that was, that, was big, <laughs> that was big time, man. And the sidekick was in legit. my head. I was like, it was a weird light bulb moment. So I knew this is eight. I'm talking about stuff that people would be like, I don't know what you're talking about. So back in the day, in the olden times <laughs> before the iPhone became the thing, there was a, a, a large amount of competition in terms of like styles of phone. Yeah. Like there was just no one phone. Yeah. Like you had the Blackberry with the full keyboard just right on the bottom of it. And then that's when the sidekick came out where you could flick the screen around and yeah. then there's a full keyboard underneath. So it's you like, had, damn, I have a mini computer. I mean, it can't do shit compared to an <laughs> iPhone, but you had flip phones, you had sliding phones, you had, it was like everything. Yeah. The like, razor that's as thin as a freaking exactly. credit card and shit. I mean, they were trying every angle. And so, you know, the, the, the Motorola two way pager was the big thing in the music industry. Oh, yeah. And then WorldCom yeah, fell. Well, they blew that up. I mean, with all the yeah. ludicrous commercials and everything. I mean, yeah. Was- and so I uh, knew that the T Mobile sidekick could potentially be the new, you know, Motorola the next big pager. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I took one to a, like, everything to me never, it never happens as just like, oh, there was this one pivot point that happens and now the whole journey changes. Yeah. It's always like a bunch of things that happen at one time. So me being in Westwood, having to go there every day, the day that the T-Mobile sidekick comes out, at the same time, I'm going to UCLA track to start training again. Uh And then on Fridays, I would go to the W to sort of just like see what, there was like an industry night. And so I'm- Fill everybody in listening and myself. What do you mean by the W? The W Hotel. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a there's a famous W in in Westwood. Okay. And so I went there and I met a young publicist at the time by the name of Echo Haddix, who's gone on to become a super amazing publicist. And she, you know, we just connected, and she was like, "Oh yeah, I'm doing a video shoot." Uh, she was doing a video shoot for MC Light, and she shout out to like, MC Light. She's yeah, a beast. definitely. She was like, "Oh, come and you know bring your sidekick or you know bring the whatever." So I bring the device and it didn't, it didn't connect to the, it didn't even connect to eight to T-Mobile yet. Like it was just like, it was just the, phone, just yeah. the device, but it was on. And I remember it was like Felly Fell was there and there were a bunch of people. And I just, they were my, all my first sort of like celebrity customers. And so. Sick. So you became like this own, your own oh, little no, like I sidekick. Be, for- I became the guy. The go-to. For, yeah. Four <laughs> sidekicks in the industry outside of. Uh, Steve Rifkin at the time and um no shit so well because of course see that's how naive I am obviously MC Light ain't just gonna stroll into a T-Mobile like a, a regular person like me and buy a sidekick yeah and so I became kind of like a little bit of a of, I would be you know a little bit of a concierge service where yeah you give me your information I'll be able to do this stuff over the computer pitching sidekicks it. off the blue line in the rapid bus exactly hell yeah and so somehow yeah I just became that guy and I, there was a weird timing where it didn't come out on the east coast first so everyone in New York that wanted it had to get it out west damn so once so so Echo and then I met a producer by the name of Gerard who knew a bunch of other producers and he was just like, yo, you know, whatever. So he wanted to help connect me. And then, yeah, the world explodes. And so like I'm in, so I'm selling, you know, everybody from Ja Rule to 
you know, Just Blaze eventually is how I connect with him was based on on the sidekick on the T-Mobile sidekick trip out. I never, would, I never, would, I never would envision that. You, that's how that was your big break to get yeah, into no, the industry. No. Was so it, so I sidekicks. get so I get into in with anybody and everybody. You know, it's the first time I met Steven Seagal at Ja Rule's house. Steven Seagal at Ja Rule's house. <laughs> Are we ready to get into those stories? <laughs> well, let's here. let's let's stick on track because we got to get we got to get to the Olympics, man. I still yeah, yeah. want I want to I want to get yeah. I want to get an to hour the, later. Yeah, I want to get to the we Olympics. We got memory. Yeah. So so um so yeah. So as the music stuff is happening, the track stuff is finally starting to settle in and lock in and go well too. Oh yeah. Um, and because it because I had no school anymore or because it was much easier to sort of manage those two. And so, yeah, so kind of was like 2002 and um, just started focusing on running and just specified on one thing. So, so would you, to get better at the 400, what was the main, what, what do you think was the main workout that you were doing on like a weekly basis or even a daily basis? I mean, were you just running 400s or were you just trying to run 800s as fast as you could to I mean, increase your speed more, cardio? It's for a much more intricate workout than that. I don't even, to be honest, I can't even remember. Fully remember the detail? I mean, we would start with mileage. That's where we would spend most of our first three months of a year. Like, we would start with being straight, like, we're running miles. We would run in the Santa Monica Mountains. We would oh, run. Shit. We would do um, a lot of... <clears throat> A lot of like whether it be mile breakups or anything, because essentially your training is a middle distance runner. Yeah, and then then the hurdles eventually come in in terms of technique, but you're still training at like a you're training almost like an 800 meter runner, and then at some point it starts to change a little bit as you start working on your speed work a little bit more. So basically, think about it like that. It's like I was I was training as if I was running at 800 because we would all run the same, and so all the 800 meter runners, the mile mileage, the 1600 meter runners. 400 meter hurdlers. We were all running the same in workout. the same group in the beginning. Okay, and then eventually it would start to specialty specify. A lot of 500s, a lot of 600s um, for time, you know, to, huh, yeah. to to get that sort of stuff. But then a lot more for me, it was a lot of technique work that made me even viable in that space because. Prior as far to, as clearing the hurdles. Yeah, because prior, well, it started getting from one hurdle to the next. Because prior to that, I had not really understood especially in the 400 there was no coach that had sat down and been like you know you need to be running 13 steps through hurdle six 14 steps to hurdle seven and then 15 in you know that sort of stuff and so that strategy Joe started, started breaking to, it down like that for you yeah and then we had Larry who was another coach who actually came from Irvine up and he was like the hurdle coach uh, and you know, it was dope cause it was a little bit of a learning experience for him. It was the first time he was now in this like world-class, you know, training. And so he took it very seriously record filming us, uh, you know, breaking down technique, just, just trying new ideas, a lot of stuff at that time. And this is before, like, like right now you can get on YouTube and find all kinds of information, yeah. but this is, you know, this is prior to that. So you didn't really have, um, you really had to have somebody who really wanted to find that that stuff. And so totally. that was super, it, it was super dope. And then at the same time I started meeting sort of the other hurdlers and the other people in LA. So LA is a hub obviously of, of training um, professionally. So you have HSI who at the time was like Maurice Green and uh, the Otto Bolden and a few other people. And then oh, one damn, my, they got some legit, they got some yeah. legit runners. And so man. they're at UCLA. And so they train, they train there. So you'd have, 
all these people who would then compete. I mean, the crazy thing about... So you're running with Maurice Green and these kind of guys, or... I mean, in the same meet, but I'm not have to run against them for anything. We don't run the same. No, meet. but I meant like training. You weren't training with these people. No, they, that's HSI. Just, yeah. so totally. So okay. the way that track breaks down really quickly, uh, when you run professionally, you're running for a country when you have to run amateur events. The Olympics are amateur, right? So they're, they're not, um, obviously most you're not getting are, paid to be there. Exactly. So they, so that's when you start running, when you see people running for their country, but f- the rest of the time, they're normally just running for their track club. So if you see, a, if you ever see a meet on TV, um, that is like one of the Golden League or whatever events. A mm-hmm. lot of times, they're straight. They're running for like Santa Monica HSI, Track Club, Santa Monica Track Club, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so you, yeah, you'd basically be competing throughout California um, and and other places, just you know, against track clubs. So it's like oh, yeah. it's okay. like having a new college you know competitive sort of team totally but it's always assorted people so you have 800 like not that many track clubs ran four by fours um there were a few that did but most of the time you're you know you're just running that's dope because it's hard i feel like that's a hard thing to do is a lot of times to keep that competitive edge after you get out of say high school or say college because there's not that many adults that are trying to compete in things. And that's what I like going about to persistence culture too, is because you get a little bit of that competitive edge, but then you also feel like you're doing it with just a bunch of your homies, like really playing like a compared to like a hard pickup game at the gym or something like no, that. Absolutely. But then it's all cool at the end of it. So yeah, that's pretty yeah. dope that you were able to, you know, keep that moving. And, it, and it's important. I mean, I think in all of these things in the through line of all these weird stories that I'm telling you, um, I think what's, the most important that you'll hear at every point is there's a community aspect. Yeah. And that's what we got. If I didn't enter into Penn at the right time with those people, it wouldn't, that music community wouldn't have fostered the next step. Yeah. If I didn't come to LA at the time that it was the, the track community and the music community wouldn't have fostered sort of that next step. Oh yeah. And I think that that, that's what important. that's, That's always important about, um, trying to accomplish things is they don't have to be, singular goals yeah you know they they and even your singular goal can often be um inspired egged on and lifted up by you know having other people around you oh yeah like at the friday night open you were suffering right next to me last (laughs) friday which was god awful man man. i think i feel like my back is still tight from all those dumbbell snatches definitely But, but but i love it like i was saying on friday you know i enjoy having had a you know uh, a life with not a lot of, of regrets. Um, I like now coming into a space where I can be terrible again. Yeah. <laughs> Fail. Yeah. Be okay with failing. That's what's, that's yeah. what's cool about it. I mean, a, there's a scale for you, no matter what, you don't have to come in and try and if, if gauge rights clean 155 pounds and that's going to feel like your arms are going to snap off. Then obviously there's a scale for that and you're not going to, you're not going to try to do that. And that's, what's cool. And everybody's okay with failing and it's more so a celebration at the end of the, at the end of the failure, which you don't get at a lot of places. So no, no, definitely. And knowing that like, you're going to have another go at it, whether it be the next day, whether it be two days, however you design your sort of workout schedule, being able to know that like, okay, this is where I am now, but I know that I'm going to, if I put in this work, I'm going to be better. Yeah. Or just put your head down for six months and be like, Oh shit. I remember when I used to have to do that banded. Now I'm just doing it. Or I remember when I used to have to do the 20 inch boxes. Now I'm crushing the 24s. Yeah. And I think it's really important to always put those sorts of, um, obstacles in your way. Um, and 
potential places for you to learn, especially as you get older, because I think that sometimes um, it can get really easy to sort of uh, get very used to and get into the routine. Oh, totally. And you have to try really hard to, um, to make sure that you're consistently putting learning experiences in front of you um, to break that because a, it makes life more interesting and B um, you know, failure is a great teacher. Hell yeah, it is. I'm actually reading a book right now that's called uh, and to engineer is human and it's called great designs figured out by failure. So, I mean, and that's what, <laughs> yeah. that's what they're basically saying in that there's no good engineer without a bunch of on, unfortunately, usually they end up in tragedies like plane crashes or buildings falling down, which, which is not ideal, yeah. but now Every engineer is now smarter than that because they realize what that dude did to where his failure was. And now people won't make that same mistake or. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you need to, you need to have a bit of, again, you need to have a bit of the, the first thing is to just get up and do it. There's a Seth Godin says something just uh, merely do the work, you know, like just do 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 the kip yeah. do the you know <laughs> yeah. whether 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 you're doing toes to bar whether you're doing toes above parallel or whether you're doing um you know tuck ups yeah. like start with doing what you can do and do it yep and you'll find that the next week you know if you have to do the same uh exercise it'll get a little bit better and the next week it'll get a little bit better. And then you'll become like me where you spend hours on YouTube watching old <laughs> CrossFit games. And <laughs> Trying to master techniques. Yeah. I can see that like Olympian in you, dude. You're always like picking the coach's brains and stuff at the, at the gym for, for techniques. And I can see how you were able to master your craft because I mean, you don't get, to, I mean, to be blunt honest, you don't get to the Olympics without, you know, mastering your craft. So it takes time. And like, I mean, yours is obviously a journey. Now here you are all the way through high school, all the way through Penn. And now you're running through the Santa Monica mountains yeah. with a coach. Um, what I thought was interesting though, is that you ran for Belize in the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So how did you get from the Santa Monica mountains to being accepted as the Belizean hurdler for the Olympics. Well, it was it was something I always knew I wanted to do. Um, growing up, and people may not, people on the West Coast, it doesn't it doesn't ring the same way. But like, because there are a ton of Belizeans here. There's the, the most Belizeans in the United States are in South, Southern California. Uh, Southern California, and so it's like a very obvious thing. You say you're Belizean, and they're like, it oh, makes yeah, sense. Okay, they cool. don't want no part of Jersey winners, bro. No, but I'm just saying, like, they <laughs> there's a ton of Chicago too. But yeah, there it's just a understood like, oh yeah, I know. I know what you are. Like there's a very easy connection to, cause they've run into some before, but it wasn't like that on the, on the East coast. They didn't know, they had no clue who or what I was. Um, and so for me, I always wanted to figure out a way to represent for Belize in some way. And that, and even when I, from when I was young, before it even was a reality, I always wanted to, I was like, I'm running for Belize. Hell yeah. Um, and, and yeah, the consulate was out here. Uh, my dad needed to go get his birth certificate. And then kind of once that happened, um, the thing, the only thing, the first thing I needed to do was a become a dual citizen. And then there were a bunch of benchmarks that I had to hit. And, you know, it wasn't just that immediately I'm going. It yeah. was because they already had had a hundred meter runner um, who had competed in 2000 Olympics. So he was kind of like the, oh, he's going to probably go, you know, yeah, the he's, star. as he's long gonna... as he qualifies, he's going to, he's going to go again. And so, um, so it was, 
it was then from that point on me to just run fast, you know, like to do well <laughs> yeah. and, and, and try to compete the best in every event. And what are they watching? Is there a certain circuit that you're on that these are like qualifying events or just most of it is times first, you know, I mean, <clears throat> the crazy thing but that to be certified times, I would imagine, right? They have to be at some type of, it's not just Joe Douglas holding his stopwatch no, saying no, no, that no, you no, ran this fast, not. but yeah, like you, you know, your the amount of track meets that happen during the summer that can be certified in, uh, in Southern California is insane. Insane. Like, it's all over the place. Yeah, because you can, there's high school meets that are in, uh, where is that place again? I can't remember. It starts with a B. It's in like, it's right next to Van Nuys. I wish I could remember the name of high school. But like, yeah, they would have just, you'd show up and it'd be like, you'd have like a master's sort of 100 meter runner or whatever, but then you'd have killers just, they need to get some time. They need to get some times on the books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, or just some extra, extra practice before something. So there were always these opportunities to, to do that. And so I, I competed and then I went to Pan American games as part of the Belize team. I think that was kind of like what solidified it. Uh, Cause I ran the four by one. I ran the 400 meter hurdles. Oh, so you ran, you ran multiple events at the Pan yeah. Am games. And so in the Pan Am games, we, you know, we had a four by one team. Um, Belize. And, yeah. Belize did. And so we got to kind of like, it was the first time we all got to kind of kick it and like put everything together. Um, and so, so yeah, I think from that point it, you know, it became like, okay, as long as you hit these, hit these qualifiers, times, whatever. Yeah. So what do they base it off of? So here's, here's Mike trying to qualify for the 2004 Olympics. How do you know what time you need to get to well, make the a, Olympics? There's, a, there's times of, there's just a time. Like they just say you have to run faster than 55 seconds. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's for everything. For and, and granted, your country can make other decisions, but it's basically like there's a, you know, there's a qualifying standard and then there is whoever the country sends. So it's well, like, yeah, of course, like the U.S. has a two. handful of people, let's say, that can all run this time. Exactly. Then so, they have to pick which ones they so that's think why are the they best. Have, they have to have, that's why they have their national championships. And a lot of the bigger countries do have their national championships. But for smaller, they would have had national championships at in Belize that I would have had to go win, to. Yeah. Right. Um, but. Marion Jones never finished building the track there. So there was just a concrete uh, okay. circle. <laughs> <laughs> well, she started at least. So. She started, but she never finished the stadium. So That's sick. So so when did you get word that, do you remember when you officially found out like, oh shit, I'm going to that's the Olympics. Funny. I really don't. I really yeah. don't remember. Wow, that's a big moment. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't, I, because at that time I had run in the Pan Am Games. I'd run at world championships already. Okay, so um, you're in some big events. That was 2003. And so it was kind of like, yeah, I don't, I, it's weird that I don't remember. So did you meet Michael Johnson then? Have was he at one of the, was he at any of those events or he was already done in the early 2000s, God, wasn't he? I mean, I'm pretty sure I've met Michael Johnson at some point, but you know, I mean, I've hung out much more with Carl Lewis, obviously. Which is incredible, man. That's, is, you know, that was hilarious, fun times. Either is he a cool a, guy? He seems oh, like yeah, he would yeah, be yeah, super cool. cool. Um, definitely cool. But like hanging out at his house in Malibu, Pacific Palisades, one of those places. And, um. Yeah, you know, dope man. That's incredible. So, so uh, do you remember going to Greece? Where did you fly out when you went? When you went? When so, you went to Greece? Where did you leave from? So, the, so for most people that run track, they spend um, basically from October, let's say, until about eh, May ish training, and uh -huh. then sort of meets begin. And meets begin uh, 
nationwide. And so if you're if you're if you're in America, you start doing that. And then there's a point where, depending on if you have to compete in a national championship or not, um, you start going overseas. So I was already overseas. I was in Belgium. Oh shit! It's yeah. Here. So you go overseas to compete. And you're running in races there, sort of priming up, getting ready. Um, through the so we were in the. That's cool. Would they put you up in all this stuff? I mean, this isn't coming out of pocket, is it? Or no, 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 no. It's definitely. But you're. So are you on some type of athletic contract at this point? Then, like, no, no. They just it's just kind of like per diem. Like, hey, Mike, you want to go to Belgium and run a couple four hundreds? And you're like, yeah, sure. You get invited to. I mean, you get you get you have to get into races. So Uh, you get into races. Some of them have. uh, Um basically participation money, right? To be in a heat. Cause these, cause at this point you're dealing with like 16 to, I mean, 32 would be a lot, but normally you're dealing with like a really small, you know, you're not dealing with like a hundred, you know, thousands of kids you're, yeah. or thousands of people. You're dealing with like, there's going to be two heats of this, two heats of this, two heats of this, two heats of this. And then that's sort of the, that's it. Yeah. That's it. So, um, so yeah. So, so went out there and, was running basically in in between those two countries, and then um, at a certain point, just you know, got to Greece. That yeah. is sick. Okay, so now you're in Greece. I always wanted to know, like, what's the Olympic village like? Is that like it's that, like that to me? That's got to be like the Sodom craziest. and Gomorrah. No. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's high school. It's it's like it's like going to college freshman year, um, and like that two weeks or that week before classes start, but they never start. So you're just like hanging out, partying. Just I mean, you can you can you shouldn't. Um, yeah, it's shouldn't what party? There's, it's everybody's all. That's what I'm wondering because I wanted to have one of the things I wanted to ask you is it is it all business when you're there for the Absolutely Olympics? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, it should be, but it's not um, because you because the funny thing about Olympic sports is like at the same place that you have obviously swimmers and gymnasts and, and track athletes and all of that basketball you also players, have whatever. Like, yeah. You have you have archers and riflery people, and they or curlers, and like they don't really have to have the. They have to be focused, but they don't have the same amount of like athletic sort of. You know, they don't have the same demands on their bodies. Exactly. That you like do. when after I was done running, I remember like yeah, going into. I mean, number one, it's so funny how corporate it is because you would walk into the cafeteria, which is this crazy cafeteria. You could get food whenever you want. So cafeteria, they, did they put you up in like a university over there? In no, Greece no, no, or something? no, no, they build the village. So it's all just this built. This is just- a new town for 10,000 people in like off the side of a mountain outside of Athens. Dude, that had to be sick, <laughs> man. Yeah, with, if everything worked because you just <laughs> well, built yeah. a new town. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sure there's probably some bumps in the road Yeah, like there, when but- I went to Pan American Games, we were in Dominican Republic and they had not put the ACs in yet. Oh, shit. Got- oh, I feel man. like that should have been first on the list in DR, yeah. man. You're going to be sweating yeah, your was ass crazy. off. It was, there was no ACs in it. And I remember like waking up and looking outside. And we had like armed security around the entire thing. Because they basically mm-hmm. just found like the cheapest place where they could just put it. And yeah. so it's not in a <laughs> nice area. That's like, because I, I hear like stories like um, countries build for like the World Cup and shit like that. And, I, or and they got people like dying as they're building these stadiums oh, yeah. and they're like literally like finishing construction like as fans are showing up for the games and show that's <laughs> yeah, super no, sketchy it, man it's, well it's hard i mean you this is a crazy infrastructure project yeah. like think the it takes four years or less when you get it 
to now build the bid, yeah. You know, to to really build out. And you're talking about expanding roadways, adding some transportation if you need to. Yeah, like, it's a lot. It's a you know, like we used to, yeah, we used to take like a, tr- it was like a train in, if I remember, and a, or a bus. I can't remember. Um, but like, yeah, you'd have to take all this stuff in, and it was just this thing built for this place that would then be not necessarily abandoned. But yeah. I don't know what they did after. <laughs> yeah, I think they just get abandoned. Unfortunately, they showed like I forget uh forget what state what what country it was. Where was the World Cup at? Do you remember where the World Cup at was? It was Brazil. Year? Brazil, yeah. yeah. And they showed these these they showed these stadiums. They're just like completely overrun. Nobody takes care of them. They yeah. just trash the grasses like four feet high on the pitch yeah, where it no, used to be. It's crazy, man. Yeah, when we were, when I ran world championships, we did stay on the University of Paris. So that was like, they didn't build a village. The University of Paris? Yeah. So they didn't build a village, so that was- What's that like? What's that like compared to Penn? Because, I mean, you're here at, <laughs> at Ivy League, which is like the creme de la creme of the U.S. I mean, does the University of Paris compare? Oh, uh, I mean, everything in Europe is, my opinion, just going to have this air of being a little bit cooler because of how old it is yeah very like true. you're staying in this place that who it could be a hundred years old like i you know like i remember djing in somewhere in um in munich and the promoter was like yeah this spot is 800 years old oh, <laughs> and i'm just in there just like just playing music. biggie oh yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, like, yeah. it's like all right cool yeah. Yeah. Oh, shit, biggie deserves to be played there man yeah so yeah so europe always has sort of that air so like that's what it did feel like an Ivy League school. Like it had that, yeah. you know, the way the buildings looked and all of that. But it, um, yeah, it was fun. Um, almost got arrested and uh, twice. Four? Four? You come on, dig in, man. Okay. Okay. <laughs> let's, go, let's go in. So this is a hilarious story that ties back. So when I was younger and trying to figure my life out when uh-huh. I was in New Jersey, for a little while, I was a booster. Right. Okay. <laughs> and especially as it related to getting clothes that my parents weren't going to buy for me. Yeah. Um, and I thought that I was cool enough to take those uh, those uh, those activities on the road. So I risky went, man. You don't know the you don't know, know the intel on the doing, places. I was doing so well before that. <laughs> Burlington Coat Factory had Burlington Coat Factory and Prep Factory Outlet and shit like that. They don't even count, bro. Burlington, <laughs> Burlington Coat Factory had the friggin' uh, had just had cameras that were faced that were not plugged in, and it was like very obvious I mean, they were yeah. plugged in. <laughs> just wire dangling so anyway, there and shit. So I go and I'm in Paris at the mall. And I'm 16-year-old self. Think I'm about to just get some fly stuff, whatever. I make it out the entire mall. And as soon as I walk to the front door of the mall, I walk out, boom, get scooped up. Damn, they were waiting for your ass. I was shook. I was like, oh, man, I'm getting arrested. Internationally, yeah, it's not good. 16 years old. So I think it ended up being that I had to pay for a shirt. You know, whatever. Oh, well, that's pretty cool uh, of them to let you go. Here in the U.S., they would have freaking threw the book at you, dude. You can't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you don't get no chance. And, but, so... Because we were staying at the university, um, they gave us basically these passes that were unlimited travel. We were like carte blanche through Paris. So you had your little, you know, your little world championships badge and you had your uh, your pass and you were just carte blanche through like get on any train, get on any bus. Damn, hell yeah. You could get in the club. It was the whole thing. But for whatever reason, my one of my closest friends, my roommate at the time, um, who ran for uh for Panama, he didn't get his little card. And so, <laughs> so like I'm getting on, I swipe, you know, swipe my thing. And then he just decides he's going to jump. turnstiles, yeah. Right. So like we were doing okay. To, you know, hit me swiping him, jumping turnstiles. I think we made it like two or three stops. And then we get stopped by this cop 
like he's just not playing with us. And you know, there's a language barrier. I'm no, sure. No, 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 not at all. You know, there's a there's sometimes a little bit of animosity with the French and English, but it was fine. Spoke. It was all good. We get caught again by the same cop oh, the, the next same day dude <laughs> at a different at a different place. And I'm sure you came to some agreement. Okay, we won't do it anymore. No. So now this becomes like a big deal, and he's got my homie like hemmed up in this corner, and it's like, oh man, what is happening? But because they ran both of our names, we ended up getting, you know, it was fine after that. But like it came back that like I still had a record there. So from, you have a record in Paris from from, from when I had stolen that stuff. Already. Oh, from, from back yeah, in the day as a yeah, youngster. Oh yeah. shit! So like almost a decade later, like my record exists. <laughs> but luckily, I was not the person breaking the law at the time. You so know, I was they, just a I was just an accomplice, basically. Oh damn. Okay. Um, well. Then the funniest thing about it all. This is the funniest thing about it. At the end, the dude is giving us he's giving us shit the whole time. We say something about producing. Because he, my friend is also a music producer. And he's like, what? Why did you say that? <laughs> that could have got you. He's a cop. Okay. He's like, I sing. And he's yeah. So then he starts going on to this whole thing about how, oh, you know, it was a, you know, big 6'3 African dude. Uh-huh. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I used to sing gospel and now I sing R&B. And, like, my voice is too strong for uh, French, for, for French tracks people. and yeah. French people, whatever. And, you know. He wants to get on a record with you? Yeah, he wants to get on a record or work. And now he yeah. definitely exchanged emails, all of that stuff. Oh, Hilarious. Shit. That's funny, man. <laughs> but yeah, so, so you know, Paris was a little bit different in terms of world championships, but everything is they build this place, you go there. And it was crazy. And it's as crazy as you think it is. Um, but I was definitely focused on trying to run really fast. So like none of the stuff that I did uh, in Athens really happened until after I was done competing. And track happens, especially 400 meter hurdles happens on the early yeah. side because uh-huh. you need a little bit of time in days between heats. Yeah, so. totally. But yeah. What Olympics. was the track like? What was the, so they built everything. Did they build the track or did no, you use the an existing track was stadium? Already, already existing stadium. Um, and you know, everything's fresh, brand new. Everything feels amazing. Yeah. Um, was it epic looking though? I just like I feel like the architecture in Greece I, I, is so is so badass and so astounding. It wasn't that this- as I so I got the chance to look at like Acropolis, like all the actual classic Greek stuff. Yeah, and that definitely felt crazy because yeah. you're just like, oh man, like this stuff has been here for a long. And time. it's like, how did they even build this stuff, yeah, which is like, mind blowing in this, itself? This looked like just a mod. It was just a modern, just stadium. a modern track. Yeah, stadium. Yeah, it was just a modern track That's stadium cool. with a hundred thousand. Yeah, as I say, did it feel did it feel like more pandemonium to you when you're no, running? Like no, because I mean, because the pen relays is pretty, like you said, it's pretty cracking. I mean, there's some pretty big events that you've already been to. You're talking fifty, sixty thousand people in at pen relays. Yeah. Um, when I ran a world championships, I think it was about a hundred. It was about the same. It was about like a hundred, nine hundred, ten thousand. Um, you don't feel the nerves get into the blocks. You were just you can't as- see those people. Yeah, you're I just have lucky. the nerves. Yeah, I. You know, the one thing that I wish that I would have had back then that I try to be better at now um, is uh, a better level of sort of like mindfulness in how I uh, just carrying really like really like mindfulness meditation and all of that stuff into performance a lot better. Like I was not good at it back then. Yeah. I would f- be freaking out in the blocks. And I didn't realize I was freaking out until later on in life. Uh-huh. Like until I was, you were actually calm in the blocks once? 
You, no, not even years later after track, after everything, because what was because it happens with all of my performances. Every before I go on stage with Kids in the Hall or before I go on stage with Lupe, I'm all it's the same feeling all the time of sort of overthinking through all the things that could go wrong. Trying okay. to overplan it, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I realized later, I was like, oh, I'm, this is pure anxiety. Yeah. I, <laughs> I know I, what I'm doing. I know how to do yeah. this. And I thought I was being smart. Right. Yeah. Like I thought that this was like, oh, this is just how smart people do. They think through like they, they plan out the entire yeah. performance. I was like, I'd be a great spy because I'm looking at all this <laughs> stupid stuff going on. I know everything. Yeah. And so I realized that I was doing myself a disservice, but I didn't know how to turn it off back then. Yeah. And um, that was what, you know, sort of ruined my my race in the Olympics because I'm overthinking, not worried about that stuff, but thinking about the hurdle race. Cause everything to me, everything at that time for me was really about perfecting a certain way over the hurdle that I had, j it just clicked two days before. So it wasn't something I had been able Hammered to test. Hammered home yeah. over and but over But it was and like again. when I ran that and my coach looked at me and, and my, uh, Bayano, my roommate, he was like, look, if you run like that, it's about to, <laughs> you're yeah, about to go Yeah, it's about down. to go down. Hell yeah. Yeah. And, but I, but it wasn't uh, second nature yet. Yeah, so you you, know? you were overthinking it at that yeah, point. Yeah, and so what happened was I jumped the gun in the blocks, but they didn't call it back. Oh, they didn't call it back. No, so but I never left the blocks. So I jumped just your hands or something. Well, I, yeah, my fully, you know, you you Full jump lunge. by crossing when the you line. when your shoulders cross the line. Yeah, and so I settle back in the blocks to be like, oh, they're gonna call this back, and you know whatever, and then the gun goes off. Uh, so I'm fully sort Relax. of sitting back in the blocks and then oh, it was, man. you know, fun panic mode, sprint, catch everybody. Now your steps are off though. Probably. No, no, no. no? Uh, it was just, I was just, I think I ran when we did time, I ran like a 20, 21, five or 21, you know, like over all the, all the hurdles. Uh huh. Through the first 200, which... Damn, that yeah. is smoking, bro. That <laughs> is hauling ass. Hauling ass. And then death comes. <laughs> and you hit that wall. <laughs> yeah, and so, like, I caught everybody... Hell yeah. ...by the fifth or sixth hurdle. And, but then, yeah, you, you didn't, you you didn't pace hit. yourself. Yeah. You hit the wall and all that. All, then the slow death of, of hurdles, eight through ten. That, to me, is what the beast of the 400 is. Obviously, we get to kind of feel the effects of running. Nobody... I don't think anybody in the gym really gets excited about when they see 400 meters, you know, At all. programmed. And it's funny because I asked you about how you felt about the 400 meters, knowing that you were an Olympian in it. And just the subtle thing that you picked up that you're turning the wrong way. I never thought about it until you said that to me. And now I, I used to run the 400 in, uh, in high school. And now it feels a little bit odd turning that way now that it's been put into my head by you. And I'm like, wow, this just feels feels weird but what i was getting at is i just think the 400 no matter how much you work at it no matter how much you train you're still going to hit a wall at some point no matter what type of an athlete you yeah, are yeah and the and the point of that and this is really the point of all the stuff especially all the stuff that i see at the gym is like you know it's the same thing when we're doing the crossfit open yeah um you know that you're going to you know that third or fourth uh um you know, time that you're doing the same yeah. thing, burpees, whatever, it's going to hurt. Yeah. Well, when we got to the round of 30 snatches on the 21.2 that we just ran uh, last Friday at the Friday night open, um, when we got to those 30 snatches, that's when it fully hit me like, holy shit, I still have to do 40 and 50 of these because the 30s felt God, God awful to me at yeah. that point. And that is sort of where 
you know, that's where the test, your test of metal. The one thing I'll say is what makes it really what so many times in team sports, right? It's easy to blame somebody else. Yeah. It's easy to say, oh, they dropped the ball. You didn't catch the ball. You threw a bad pass. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But in something like CrossFit, even though there's a team uh, around you sort of cheering you on. Yep. When it comes to that moment, that those moments, that's when it is you versus you. Yeah, that's it. You versus you know? your own. And that's what track is at the end of the day as well. It's like you can run a bunch of relays, but at the end of the day, when you come off of that third turn and you're dying <laughs> and you have a straightaway left and you still have to try to figure out how to dig in and run faster. Without falling forward yeah. and you're jumping over hurdles in your case. So yeah, and I think as my coach would call it, the bear the bear jumped on your back, I see. <laughs> you know, like that is you know, like that's what that's what that felt like when it was like, oh, I have 50, you know, dumbbell snatches to yeah. do right now. Oh right. And you're just like you're trying to power through it and you're trying to just go blank enough to just, yeah. you know, get the, the motions automatic. And that's, you know, that is what to me. when We talk about persistence culture. Right. That is where it matters. It, you know, getting getting to. Getting to start is one part. That's yeah. a super important part. But knowing that there is going to be a point when you're going to feel terrible and failure is is eminent and right there, knocking at the door, trying to say, hey, just just stop right now. You're, and you still have know? to be persistent <laughs> at moving that damn exactly. dumbbell off yeah. the ground every time. So Yeah, and it's knowing that, again, it's just one more rep. It's just merely... As Seth, you know, Seth would say, Seth Godin, merely doing the work. Like yep. you have to be, that's when you have to dig in deep and do that. Definitely. That work. Yeah. And, and while we're on the topic of the open, we definitely had some athletes digging in deep. Um, Gage is, is crushing the game right now, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I'll just read off a couple of rankings. Uh, he's 2852 right now in the world, which is like legit as hell to me. Very much. So. Like that dude just completely amazes me all the time like and he does it with such like humbleness and like just a slow steady motor and that when I say slow I mean completely faster than I would do it but it's just like it's just like this calmness about him while he's going through a horrendous workout that I just yeah. don't understand how he does it and then uh Bridger freaking crushed it I mean this was right up his alley he finished in 11 minutes and uh, 58 seconds nice so uh, he jumped like 5,000 spots where he was ranked uh, from 21-1 and now he's all the way up to 44-59 and uh, some of the female members Lindsey Bram up at the Moore Park facility smoked it with 13-38 and she's like ranked in the top 3,000 now too at 28-69 um, Anel still in the top 10,000 she crushed it with like 17-11 time and Gabby who I was talking to wasn't thinking about doing it I'm glad that she did it because she freaking she she dominated thirteen forty. Jeez. Yeah, that's crazy, man. Yeah, that's insane. I, and that's I don't that's even yeah, that's that. like full RX. And then of course, uh, huge shout out to Jen Tondu. She smoked it. She got twenty seventh out of everyone in the uh, sixty plus masters uh, oh, division. Twenty nice. seventh out of everyone, oh. and now she's at forty fifth overall. So like Amazing. she's going into twenty one three. Ready to you know snap necks and cash checks, man. She, Jen right. is all about business, dude. If I'm if I'm moving like her when I'm when I'm when I hit the sixty mark, man, I will be pumped, dude. So <laughs> thank you for being my motivation, Jen. Like that's seriously, amazing. yeah. And that's what I, I mean. That's what I love. I mean, that's how the gym sort of works in my life too. Is like I love that all this other chaos that I have kind of going on. That it is the place where I can just 
it's me versus me. You yeah. know, like you can you can shut down the other the world for that. that get some solitude in it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and just sort of like uh, just put in that work and get beat up. Yeah. You know? And feel yeah. better about it the next day. You know, exactly. it's like it, 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 it's really it's really incredible. And um, so let's get back to let's get back to uh, to you starting kids in the hall in college. Um, so real quick, I wanted to ask you, have you watched the Netflix documentary? Have either you guys seen the one that they put up now on the college scandal? With, no, uh, no, I've been wanting to watch it though. Yeah. With like Aunt Becky and, and the crew that I saw got, a quick little piece on it. Yeah. But. How do you, being someone that did the work to get into an Ivy league school, how do you feel about, you know, someone <laughs> saying that they're a rower when they're not really a rower and taking away a spot on that team that should have went to somebody that maybe was putting in that work? Look, <laughs> people are going to do what they have to do. Everybody in the world at any point in time is going to cut a corner when they can. It yeah. just depends on their means. No matter what we want to think about it, no matter how we know that, oh, it's not right. But like, look, it happens. It, yeah, yeah, totally. You're 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 supposed to walk around the block, but that alley is right there, and you can just jump the fence to get yeah. cut through this person's yeah. you know yard. But, but you're sometimes not there's a goon to. in that alley, and you get robbed, and then you're like, damn, I shouldn't <laughs> have went down the alley. Exactly, and and so it's like we're you know I went to school where I went to school with Ivanka and Donald Trump Jr. Right, like. They were there in your class, like during the time you were at Penn. Yeah, or, yeah. God damn, dude, the list of the and, list, the list of uh, classmates you had is pretty you know, extensive, it's like, bro. And, you know, Jay Pensky, um, and it's like, sure, I'm sure they did well at school, but like, you know, they got in, they got in because of legacy. Like a lot yeah. of people get in straight up because it's like, oh, your parents went there, your grandparents That's went true. there, X amount of money was donated. Like, there's no difference between what they did. Um, Except that just like the weird ways they went it, like they could have just like Dr. Dre just uh, bought a building. To me, I, <laughs> to me, I think it's funny though because like even just having these things that separate it, like that the these Ivy League schools are that much better than let's say I mean you see Santa Barbara's a fine establishment, you know, but or better than say I don't know Sacramento State, and it's just all because of this like prestige that they that they have about them, and it's all just made up nonsense when you really think when you really think about it if you get a degree in engineering you should be just as good of an engineer as somebody from sacramento state if i'm just happen to be a better engineer then i'm gonna be better than everybody that graduated from stanford in mechanical engineering too that's because that's who i am it doesn't matter if i go to sacramento there, state or to stanford and i just feel like there is a difference there is a difference um because there are some schools, and this has nothing to do with whether it's Ivy League versus you know uh, state schools or whatever. But there, what I do notice in some schools, especially even like my school, and I didn't uh, appreciate it until getting out, is like they work a lot more in sort of like, like when I started learning computer programming, I didn't learn like, oh, this is how you make an app. This is JavaScript. This is whatever. We started with the original programming like language and then like <laughs> lisp where it's all parentheses and numbers yeah, right you're just like typing in commands just, and shit you're just learning because you because when you learn theory and when you learn the philosophy behind the thing then when you go and you have to apply it to other stuff yeah it's a lot easier because you understand the fundamentals of it right you don't just understand the thing right like uh 
music production, it's like, it's one thing to say, okay, oh, I need drums on this beat. Okay, I'll get this drum, these drums from wherever. But it's also another thing to say, no, no what makes a boom bat beat a boom bat beat is that uh, they're pulling from Clyde Stubblefeld, you know, breaks on James Brown and it like, it yeah. sounds this way and the sonics work in this way. And so that's what makes it blend and work better in something better, right? It takes some people learn, but you learn you think, that later. But, but do if, you think that you're? But I mean, what I'm getting at is, don't you think at the end of the day, it's obviously a, a personal thing because it doesn't matter. Obviously, if you have a great teacher yeah. and a great coach, you can you can pick up things. But you can't take someone who's not going to be a good computer programmer or a mechanical engineer or whatever and turn them into that just because your paper says Stanford on it versus Sacramento State is what I'm getting at. It's weird because you'll also get. You know, so my brother went to Harvard. So when I was talking about how that first Princeton letter changed really both of our trajectories, because neither one of us were thinking about Ivy League schools in that way. But once I went to Penn because of getting that letter to go to Princeton, then he was like, oh, okay, I can also look at these. Is he a younger brother or older brother? He's younger by three, three years. So he ends up going to Harvard. Um, What I will say is that like now he's in data science, um, but he graduated with a physics degree. But it still is like the basis of the education. He's able to then apply it in a much broader maybe way than somebody who maybe went somewhere and it was like, oh, you're going to be a mechanical engineer. So you're going to be a mechanical engineer. Like you don't have the theory behind it to say, oh, I'm good now. I can do this. I, I can pivot and do this other sort of thing. I right? agree like, and that happens. The reason why that happens sort of. It happens for two reasons. It happens because you do have a good level. And granted, look, you go to Carnegie Mellon, you go to Stanford, like you go to USC, UCLA, like we're not, these are all in the same sort of boat. Um, But a junior college or a certain state schools don't get, they just don't get the, the talent. They don't get the talent in research and they don't get the talent in terms of the professors and maybe the grad students that are going to allow for that sort of teaching to happen. And that's where those little bit of lines is where it does sort of matter, but it doesn't, it doesn't, you're right. At the end of the day, there's certain, like if you have, uh, if you have a, a, a passion for that thing, or if you have a focus on trying to get better at it, it doesn't matter where you go. You're going to do it. And that's first. But part of you does believe in the prestige, that it's an actual thing. It's just that there's two things that happen. A, you get the pass to fail, right? Like you get the, if someone is looking at a resume and they see somebody that went to some certain state school or DeVry, and then you get somebody that went to UCLA, Right, they're going to give the person the opportunity at UCLA, maybe because it says that. And it's true, but then doesn't that play into my point of the prestige? Is just and actually a funny thing about the word prestige is that the true origin means to be sought out out of trickery or deceit. That's literally the definition of prestige. So when you basically say that, like these are the places that trick you the best by saying, "Hey, we're at UCLA." In if I think the most important thing that Penn taught me outside of all the actual things was that that sort of statement of like, um, say yes and buy the book later, right? Yeah. Like, and because it teaches you the audacity necessary to, because what I figured out, and this settled in even when I was at um, Penn after a while, is like, the the biggest hurdle people have to make is that is to is to realize that they belong there 
Yeah. Right. Like, and sometimes that takes people out all the time, you know, for, for cultural reasons, uh, because they just don't understand. You got all these prep, you, these prep school kids, you've got all these, all these kids who are coming. Like, I remember when I was at, when I went to go with my parents to, to, um, to let when my brother went to Harvard, like when we were taking him up there and like his next door neighbors came and they had just gotten like $30,000 in their bank account from their parents to just buy school supplies. And like they came with like, <laughs> they had like blackberries wow. and you know, whatever. And they would get car. It's <laughs> like, Oh, you're staying, you're staying at, uh, you know, you're staying for the, um, for the summer at school. Okay, cool. We'll just get you a car. We'll just get buy you a BMW for it. You know, whatever. Oh man. And so it's hard to really, um, it's hard to really get into that. It's the same, it's, and we can tie it back, because it's the same thing at the gym. There's a lot of conversations that you have with people, I'm sure, where you talk about CrossFit, right? Yeah. Or you talk about like, yo, you should come to the gym. Like, it'd be cool, it'd be this. And they have this idea in their head about what it is. Totally. And that is the thing that makes them not go. It has nothing to do with totally. what would happen if they got there and be like, oh, okay, I can do this. This was cool or this was fun. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or like this was terrible, but I'm ready to do it. Again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My arms don't work anymore. But yeah. And so much of, of, of it really does come down to just like getting over that first thing. And that, that first part is like the most important piece. And then, then that the rest yeah. of everything will fall in line. Cause then at that point now you're letting reality take over instead exactly. of perception. And, and so. so, so much of it is, I think, the the prestige because it exists allows for things to happen people to move through the world you know like the firefest guy right uh-huh. <laughs> you know he's not that much different than a lot of startup founders in silicon valley except he just couldn't execute that last bit right yeah the persistence yeah, he didn't have enough persistence to, to, do to it. really be able to do it but because he went to the school he went to and because like he was given all of the the opportunities, of the opportunities to yeah. fail mm-hmm. and that is just as important you need both of those and sometimes yeah. you have to give that opportunity to yourself yeah. and that's about you know that's when we talk about going to the gym it really is just about saying like okay i'm gonna go in here and it's gonna be terrible but i'm gonna get better at it and then yeah and that's just well, it's like michael jordan had a saying once that it was like he's like the main thing about making the game winning shot is you have to take the game winning shot. And a lot of people don't want to do that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's like those things you got to do, whether, whether or not you think it's going to go in or whether or not you think it's going to work, you got to try it. And, but a lot of that comes to, comes down to when you, you trust yourself more because you've trusted that you've done uh, you trust yourself more when you've done the work. Definitely. Like, like, when, like your hurdle technique, you would yeah. have trusted it a little bit more if you had done it three months before the Olympics and got to work on it the exactly. entire time. You know, like when you get into anything that you have to do, especially whether it be in competition or, or outside of competition, like the more you do it, the more you just go through those motions, the more that you really trust uh, yourself. And then uh, those things, I think, execute a little bit easier. Oh, yeah. Okay, so where I was going, though, is uh, now you've got kids in the hall, right? Mm-hmm. So you and Knowledge are, are, starting, are, are starting your uh, group. When did, when did you think you guys got your first break? Because you were talking about, you know, so, 310 motors and all these things that kind of were potentials but never really happened. When was it like, damn, finally, all right, so, here we are. So we got to go all the way back to T-Mobile. Right? Uh-huh. Um, sidekicks, so, bro. Yeah, sidekicks. <laughs> um, so we were not a group back then. Right. We were not, I was a producer and I was producing for knowledge, the solo artist. Um, I ended up, 
I was working, one of my friends, DJ Pro, he had a bodega in the back of his, uh, I mean, he had a studio in the back of his bodega in Long Beach. Okay. And I would just work out of there, just, you know, working out of the studio. And so knowledge came for the summer because at that time it was, and I was focused on track. And yeah. so knowledge made the leap where he was like, yo, I'm coming out for the summer to LA. He had just he had graduated a- college. He had an idea for a mixtape. Kanye had just come out. And so he wanted to do something called a college graduate. He just graduated. He wanted, he had found, there was like a mixtape at that time floating around that was all these uh, Kanye instrumentals. Okay. And so, a good start. You know, so he grabbed that. Um, he had a similar background to Kanye. So, it, you know, a, a lot of things clicked sort of when Kanye first came out of Chicago um, because, you know, it, because it, again, made a, it let people know, oh, like, Oh, we can do that. It's you don't possible. have to. You don't have to come from a certain hood and a certain sort of means to make it as a rapper. Because yeah. now Kanye just sort of he just put himself out there and, and exactly. eventually got on. Yeah. So we were recording. Yeah, just in the back of uh, you know, we were recording in the back of a bodega in Long Beach, and um, I had a couple of inst- I had a couple of beats at the time, and so he rapped over those two, and they just it all just really fit well together. Yeah. And he was just kind of like, yo. It's just us now. Like uh, the whole bunch of people, the cast of characters that we had that were around us, they were gone and it was just us. Like everybody who kind of had helped or been a part of the journey or wanted to be a part of the journey, everyone had to go their sort of own ways. And it was like just us. And it was like, okay, why don't we just be a group? Like, like the old school, like, you know, just producer DJ and MC. And I think he threw out the idea, like the kids in the hall name is just like a joke. And we were like, I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, I remember the Canadian. The you know, old, yeah, it was like a but it also, comedy show yeah, or something it, like that. Yeah. It meant something different for us because we were like the, you know, smart kids, like those dudes in high school who somehow figured out, it's like, what are they doing in the hall? It's like, oh, well, you know, he is this class president. And so yeah. he somehow figured out how to just not be in class, but still got good grades. Yeah. So that was the first thing that I felt like made sense for me to play just to play to just blaze. So I played it for just, and he had, he really liked sort of what he heard. Um, Cause at that time I had just, I was kind of like, I was a bit of an errand boy for him. So whenever he was in LA, he couldn't drive at the time, take him wherever he needed to uh, get new sidekicks. Cause he would break them up every time. <laughs> um, you know, just help however, however he whatever needed. he needed, yeah. But what he allowed me to then was just be in the studio, yeah. So I got to just be in the studio and then just absorb everything that was happening in the studio. So whether it be with the game when he was making documentary or like whoever he was in there with or working on, I was just I got to just be yeah, sort of fly, fly on the wall, on the wall yeah, heck yeah, and start to meet uh, a bunch of people. And um, yeah, he liked the record, and weird again as my life has been so i'm at third street promenade and um i was i had a 25 key keyboard and i would just like make beats at the starbucks there and one of my homies from college his name is dan salamito he played basketball there he comes up to me he's like oh double o like you know like what's going on what have you been up to and i was like oh yeah working on this kids in the hall blah 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 and he's like oh that's cool because i actually after college I went to N1 and then I went to go work at Electra and I just left Electra. And so like he's been in the music industry now for a couple of years. So it was like, okay, we should connect. So he loved the record. 
Well, N one had a big tie with the yeah, whole hip hop game the back then, tapes. and they were doing mixtapes exactly. and everything. Dude, so, I miss those days, man. What happened to <laughs> yeah? I mean, it went yeah. to shit somehow. Not to shit. I mean, everything's still good. I know change is good, but man, yeah. That, so he N1. connected. He we connected, and then he basically became our manager, and he was just like, "Yo, I'm gonna run this around." And so he, we just, you know, I was like, "Okay, cool." So I just started making more records. Knowledge and I started focusing on making our own records, um, and we were just doing joints and. This happened almost like right as the Olympics, the same summer of the Olympics. Okay. Um, the busy 2004 for you, busy man. Busy 2004. There was this weird scenario where knowledge had entered into this competition that Just Blaze was a coach. I mean, was a judge on and then just calls me. And I remember being in the Olympic Village and he called me about, he's like, did you know that he entered in this? I was like, no, I don't think so. He's like, oh, you know, don't want any conflict of interest, yada, yada, yada. And he would, just was interested in us because this was the time when he was trying to build a label. And so uh-huh. Saigon was the first artist yeah. and he was thinking about building out sort of a label. So he was like, you know, whatever, maybe we'll be on it. What's up with Saigon? Is he still making music? I'm not sure. He was I'm, just on yeah. something. He was, you should go, uh, I'm pretty sure he did either Vlad. I think he did DJ Vlad. Um, so he's got a whole, you can watch yeah. a two hour, whatever thing. And, um, yeah, things moved really fast after that, you know, like for whatever reason it took, it took, um, just the like coalescing of ideas, knowledge to get out of college, um, me to sort of understand what I wanted to do production wise. And then the group thing to come together yeah. and the ethos behind the group to come together yeah. to sort of make sense. And so once that clicked, it just moved and, um, Barely a year later, we had a deal. Oh, so who are some of, who are some of your uh, early inspirations for in producing? Like when you decided that you wanted to be a producer, who did you use? Kind Timberland, of a, Timberland, yeah. Timberland, 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 Timberland. Like I remember watching Pony and being like, "What is happening on this? <laughs> How is he doing? What is this? There's this weird uh, vocal sound. There's this like I had to figure out how he was doing it. And so like at first I didn't really sample. Like I was not like chopping samples up. It was just- all like Timberland, Timberland, and then Manny Fresh and and the Neptunes. But when I got to Sony is when I learned the MP, and then I learned about like how sample chopping, how to do things. things, how to you know do all that, and then yeah, merge them together. Then as um, what would my day when I was training for when Bayano, my, my, uh, my teammate also ran in the Olympics and also was a producer. Like we basically had like two desks that were against the wall that we just had our production setups on and we would wake up, we would eat, you know, oatmeal, go do a jog, come back at three o'clock. We would go work out go through our workout for three or four hours, come back and then produce Just make like beats. every single day. That was the only things we did. Hell yeah. So producing was the thing we did as our sort of like pastime um, after track, but track was the focus at that time. But because of that, I just, it was one of those times where you just get infinitely better. Cause it's literally the thing you're doing sort of every day. Mastering your craft. Um, yeah. yeah. And so that allowed me to sort of make leaps and bounds so that by the time knowledge graduated in 2004, those things were con- were able to connect and then boom and then it oh, just yeah. kind of connects and then my manager met um john monopoly at the time kanye's manager and uh he was running good music he really liked what he was hearing from from knowledge he actually didn't want to sign kids and all he wanted to sign knowledge as a solo artist um and so the first deal we did with raucous was for knowledge as a solo artist oh, okay and then not to forget because Unfortunately, he just passed away. But during that time, um, Dan 
Knowledge used to work for a guy that used to run this uh, small record label in New York called Major League Entertainment. And their big thing was they would use old, he was making records where he would go and like, hey, AC alone, I want you on this beat from 88 Keys and like pay to make that record okay. and then put it out as a 12 inch. This is during like, I don't know if you remember the game records, game recordings. Game recordings got big, Shecky Green, he would put like these really bad chicks on 12 inches uh-huh. and uh, people were just buying them. Just because of just, the female, yeah. yeah. So like uh, if the Bad Meets Evil series with like Royce the Five Nine and Eminem came out on game, like that was sort oh, of what okay. was happening. All right. So he had the sports equivalent of that where he'd have like, you know, the crazy Mike, uh, the crazy Muhammad Ali picture, you know, knocking out somebody and then like OJ or whatever. So that was the major league thing. So knowledge had worked for him in high school. I mean, in college as an intern. And so we came to him because he had more of a structure. Um, and then he ended up sort of like co-managing the whole situation. And so with, through him, we were putting out a bunch of mixtapes as kids in the hall, but then this impending raucous deal came on the table. And the reason that raucous came on the table was John Monopoly had just signed Sarah from LA. Sarah Creative Partners was managed by raucous. And so he basically gave us a decision. He was like, yo, if you come to good music, which he was originally thinking about signing, he was like, who knows when you guys are going to come out, right? Like, it could be, who knows? You put but, on the back burner, kind Exactly, because you're going to be the small fish in this big pond, and all of Kanye's boys are already going to have precedence over you. Or, I do the reverse deal that I just did with Sarah, with you over at Raucous, and you're going to be a priority. And so, yeah, so that, that happens. We go over there. Um, Raucous wasn't really what we thought it was, but it, um, we had this funny little carve out in our contract where when they wouldn't put the knowledge solo album out because we didn't have a hit, right. Then we were like, okay, okay cool. We'll put just the kids in the hall album out. And we were going to sign another deal. Cause we had a carve out where they didn't have kids in the hall as yeah. an actual group um and they were like no 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 no, don't do that (laughs) so they ended up signing that project to put out the kids in the hall project um was that the label with driving down the block on it or the record that was right before that so wheels fall off was like our first big single they didn't no one really knew what was going to happen what we were doing was trying to buy time and maintain sort of like the growing internet buzz Uh of these guys who mess with just blaze and like have stuff going on they went to ivy league school it's weird they're like a group because at the time <laughs> groups were not a thing like, no no especially you know, like, not that kind of old school way yeah. like where it's a producer versus a, yeah, a, a hip-hop we, artist we became that. like once we came out i mean little brother was already there right and so then once we came out you kind of have tanya morgan right after that you also have the cool kids that come right after that you have um Pactive that comes right after that you have all this stuff that comes like it so then all of a sudden it becomes all groups but right where we were, this is 2006, um, you know, it wasn't the case. So it was this interesting scenario. So basically, Weird how that kind of like ebbed and flowed a little bit because yeah. it was bigger. Like, I mean, when you think of like Gangstar being Guru Absolutely. and DJ Primo, I mean, there's like some killer combos that it really worked pretty well for. And uh, even like yeah. Atmosphere with, with uh, but Slug. But in the major label system, it was much easier to sign just a rapper because then there's only one person you have to control. Yeah, you don't have to, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's true. It's easy and it's easy to take that rapper and say, here's your hit from Trackmasters or, you know, whoever, or from from the Neptunes and just put two 16 bar verses in between and now we're ready to go. So are you a firm believer then? And what's your take on, so I know some producers feel like 
some producers would just say, I make my beat, anybody can rap on it. And then some producers are like, no, I need the right artist on this beat because they're like the final instrument to completing the whole beat. Um, I've been both. Um, the way that I am now is in understanding that everyone's perception of the world and reality is different. Yep. Literally. True, True the words. The way you see blue, and we both agree that it's blue, but I guarantee you we're not seeing the same color blue. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> right? Like, it's approximate enough. Yeah. Right? It's close so enough, that it's yeah. blue. And I think that what happens with creatives sometimes is they see something so specifically their way that it has to be executed their way when someone else, rapper, singer, another producer, whoever comes into it, their perception of it is totally different. Yeah. And so you want to allow for someone to come in and say, oh, okay, well, if I do this, this, and this, now I have this thing that I just, you know, like that they created, and now you have something totally new. Yeah. And so I love the idea. I've always been a, I've never been good at being a producer for hire, sort of. I mean, the, um, the person who just makes a bunch of beats, sends them out, and then hopefully somebody, somebody raps picks on one them. up. Yeah. You know, I've always been somebody that's kind of like, oh, okay, I like what you have going on. Let's sit and make some records. Let's you know, make, it, let's let's make, some songs. make yeah. something that's going to be a more organic and be, you know, tell a, tell a story and, and really yeah. be um, something that, uh, that we both enjoy rather than what can become the assembly line process sometimes. In the, in the oh show. yeah. So what's the, what's the, uh, what would you consider the best venue that kids in the hall ever rocked? Hmm. Just favorite venue, not like most epic, but just like that one show that you're like, yo, there's that shit was sick. Place we well, there's so many of those, but there's like this place that we did called. Uh, there's this festival called outside of um, Prague called the Hip Hop Kemp Festival, and it was on an old abandoned military base. It's like sixty thousand people, and it was all just all rap, and it had like the the missile silos and stuff were oh, covered shit. in grass. So it was almost like you were just on an, in an amphitheater. Hell yeah. And it was just all this crazy. There was a tank next to the stage. That's dope. <laughs> that is sick. And I just remember, it was funny because it was also the biggest learning experience for us. When we made our first album, we were making like 85 BPM dope hip hop that we thought, you know, we wanted to. You know, our first single, Wheels Fall Off. Fill me in, 85 BPM. Uh, just mid-tempo stuff, like Gangstar. Okay. So Wheels Fall Off really took off in Europe. And, they, and Raucous didn't know that this was going to happen. But they didn't realize there was this rabid Raucous fan base waiting for the rebirth of Raucous. Okay. And so they did a couple little things where they were like, oh, yeah, we're coming back out and we have this group, you know. Uh -huh. And it just moved. Like Everybody the, wanted everyone it. Everyone ate up everything that we had going on. So we became extremely famous in Europe really fast, not so much in, in America. It's weird how that works, man. But, you know, it was timing. So yeah. um, what I realized, though, is while I love making that music, it isn't always great to perform. And so we, were th we had to throw things into our set to give energy to the records that were a little slow. Oh, okay. I get what you're saying. Um, and so that was, it was amazing performance. Uh, it was, we had already, we had just found out that we were going to go on tour with Redman not too long after that. 
And then Redman was headlining. Oh, that had to be a good time, man. So got to build with him sort of like, yo, this is about to happen. I feel like um, Reggie's one of the, got to be one of the, like the coolest guys in the industry. Oh, yeah. to kick and it he's with. got a boy named Double O, also from New Jersey. <laughs> no shit. Yeah, and so it was like a whole conversation So where did Double O come from while we are on it real quick? Just 007, you know. Yeah. I, like I told you, that spy anxiety stuff in my head. Hell yeah. I always had. I was just like, oh, That's yeah, dope, man. it be that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that was like a really great performance. And, we, and we've had a bunch of those. I mean, there's been, when you come off the stage and you know that you've murdered it. Yeah. Like that sort of feeling, it, it could be on a small stage or it could be on, a, um, on one of the really big, big stages. I mean, on the really big stages, it's like, oh, yeah. But like, even when I think about like our Lollapalooza show, there was stuff that was fun. We tried to go a little overboard with, we had a full band, we had background singers, we had all Overdid this it a stuff. little bit, yeah. Yeah, and it felt like the certain songs didn't convey, but it was still amazing. We, yeah, you had like, a great time. You know, you have a certain level of energy. Um, it's always dope. But yeah, I mean, I've had, there's always like a, the gift and the curse of performing is that, you know, your last great show is like the last great show. So yeah. like you you're can't only say, as good as the last time. So you can't, yeah. but you can't say, sometimes it's hard to say like, oh, this was the greatest show yeah. because like that high that you just felt from five shows ago That's whatever, what's in your head. is what you're chasing when you're going to, to every true. other show. That makes sense. Okay, I can, I can. Yeah, because uh, every, every, every tour is going to be different. Every venue is going to be different. You know, to have a packed house and do certain things in is always going to be sort of like what you want. But, um, yeah, you're kind of always or turning a crowd. That's a big thing. Like my one of some of my favorite times are like when we were on tour with the or the first couple shows we did with the Clips. Um, you know, walking. Uh, what year was that? Do you remember around what time it was? Uh, it would have been 2010. Something yeah, because like there were some times, man, when the Clips was hot. Bro. Yeah, this I mean, was like, this was like after Reup Gang. This yeah. is when they were sort of getting hot. That run where they were getting hot yeah. again. Um, and uh, yeah, we did a show with them. Uh, in Baltimore. Oh, that was, <laughs> so you already know. Yeah, what you already know who's showing up to yeah, a show hell in yeah, Baltimore. Yeah, you know who's coming to that show. And they should not have had us on that stage, but it was amazing to be like, okay, here come the two nerd kids that are dressing <laughs> funny, and now we have to convert a Baltimore Clips crowd. Yeah, a Baltimore Murderland crowd into yeah, man, yeah. But but then you do it. Yeah, hell yeah. You know, and then it's just like, oh, okay. Because you, you relate got, to people, yeah. Yeah, because you also just got to, you know, performing is about telling a story. It isn't always about playing your songs. Yeah. Because people don't know your songs, especially to, when you're dealing in, in new audiences. And sometimes it's just simply about how can I exchange the right amount of energy with this crowd totally. um, and make it, you know, dope. Like Lupe and I um, were in the middle of the Middle East once on this uh on this military base and the Colombians and the and the US were sort of dual control of the base, but the Colombians thought that a Spanish actor was coming. They thought Lupe oh, Fiasco they, was a Spanish actor. Okay. They had no clue who it was. <laughs> right. So they're thinking they're about to get, get some their, Spanish music exactly. and yeah. And they were so disappointed when we showed up. <laughs> But it was oh, like, and it doesn't matter that he had all these hits, right? They don't know who he is. They, they don't give they a don't shit. Know. So luckily, Lupe had just come from Colombia. Like he'd okay. gone to Medellin for like a, a bachelor party. And so for he a knew. Bachelor party? Got there. Hey, that's the life. <laughs> that's the life, right? <laughs> and so he knew all of these. He knew all these like hot joints that were in the club oh, okay. in Colombia because he had people he could text or whatever. Hit up, yeah. And so we just like, we loaded up the set. 
And so we did a couple of records, you know, good good energy going, yeah. and then started just forcing people to like merengue batata and Hell everything, yeah. and then killed it. That's you dope, know yeah. by just doing by playing with the crowd rather than worrying yeah. about like if I don't do this song. That is true. Yeah. I mean, I some of the best things that I've experienced in going to concerts is I love when there's people that I don't know on the opening acts like. Uh, the Electric Factory in Philly. I'm sure you're familiar with yep, it. Yep. Yeah, so I saw Quali there once, and uh, Jean Grey was the uh, the opening artist, and I had no clue who she was, and she came out on that stage, and uh, she she did like a she did like a remix to uh, Slim Thug. Uh, I ain't heard of that. <laughs> she came out to that, bro, and she just fucking lit that place up, bro. Everybody lost their minds. I don't think, and it was a, definitely a hip hop crowd. I mean, you're going to a quality concert. So I mean, yeah. sure. A lot of people there knew, but I had no idea who she was. And she just came out and like completely slayed this like 10 track little set. And it just bounced. Yeah. I mean, again, it's the most important part is to, is to tell your story when you're on stage, yeah. especially in front of people that you, yeah. that you don't know. It doesn't matter. Like they're not going to remember your songs, but if they remember you, then they're going to go to the merch table to buy their, your songs. Exactly. To yeah. Them, yeah. 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 So she know. crushed it. And the electric factory is like a, a room like this. It feels like when it's, when it's a packed house, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. Pre -co first... pre COVID days. I mean, we were, we were <laughs> jam packing that joint, man. It was Our good like, times. Our first biggest show at kids with kids in the hall was at the Electric Factory. Uh, oh, you performed at the Electric Factory. Oh, I've performed at the Electric Factory a bunch of times. Oh shit, but man, that's like awesome. Common, Keisha Cole, and us. Dope, man. <laughs> that's probably a good night. It was a, it was a, it was a funny night because I think Keisha Cole ended up opening for us. It was like a uh -huh. weird scenario, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I mean, Hell yeah, fun times. Like I can't eat, I can't be. Um, Mad yeah, well, we we could go on for for hip hop and music all the time, but I do want to touch before before this episode runs up. I want to touch on uh, your new gig. I mean, uh, culture marketing manager at Red Bull. Mm -hmm. That sounds like it's got to be a badass gig, man. How are you liking it so far? It's good. It's a uh, you know what I realized maybe even a little bit before the the pandemic began was that I wanted to start transitioning into. Uh, I learned something really early on when I was in LA from uh, one of my mentors, his name is Adrian Miller. He manages, he used to manage Anderson Pack. has managed uh, free nationals, a bunch of people. And he was like, you always have to be mindful um, that when you're, you know, drinking out of the cup of water, that is our culture, that you are uh, pouring some back in. Yes. Eventually there's nothing left. Wise words. And so um, it was important that I started to figure out ways in which I could kind of use my very weird journey, right? <laughs> like sidekicks, Olympics, all of this sort of stuff <laughs> through the music industry. Um, but the things that I learned to be able to sort of give that back and, and use my expertise in slightly, a slightly different way, not worrying about being at the forefront all the time, but you know, doing it um, and hopefully inspiring another generation. And so started sort of kind of like going down that path, figuring out what would, that was going to be. Um, and Red Bull had always been a company that in the past uh, we did a, we did a reality show with them on, on MTV uh, two back in the day. And so, you know, I always knew that they were a company that was really about um, allowing people to like achieve dreams that they had not necessarily they wouldn't be able to do so sort of without a little bit of a little bit of help and it just the job came up you know the job came up um and one of my friends had been working there for a while and yeah it just it really came together it's one of those things too like same thing 
it's uh, it feels almost identical in the same way to kind of like how when things clicked with Kids in the Hall, everything yeah. just rapidly moved. Um, it was the same That's thing. The Red Bull thing. Like, yeah, like it it just happened at the right time. I was back out here. It was in it was a LA based job, um, and it just. Everything moved. My guy was there, but he was leaving, but he set it up so that, you know, I met the right people there and the interview process went extremely well and it just connected and it worked. And like sometimes it's weird because I think, I think that you often bang your head against the wall a lot when you're trying to figure out the next move and you kind of need to go through that process. But then when when the shift happens, you're like, oh, that was easy because, yeah. <laughs> you know, like the because, you know, I spent a lot of 2020 realizing that the world is basically going through a giant midlife crisis. Um, it is an entire shift in the way that culture is going to be thinking about itself. Uh, I know we've had a bit of these conversations, but yeah. I, it felt exactly like the blog era did where the music industry was destroyed by Napster. And then all of a sudden you had this blog era pop up where people didn't really understand, but they were just like, let's go, let's see what's happening. You know, now, right. All these blogs are all hip hop. All these things are happening. YouTube comes out at the same time. And so now you can get videos out without having to go through the process. Being anybody, you could do it at your house and make a yeah, music video. And yeah. then, yeah, then, then the, then the DSLR camera comes out and you have all this stuff that comes out at the same time. And it moved slower then. You know, it moved, you had a, a year or two blogs, you know, blogs, it, MySpace was popular, then blogs became popular, then you'd hear about, like, the one person that got signed from MySpace to a record label, then you'd, you know... And like, everybody wants to get signed from MySpace. Yeah, yeah. but you, you had this, like, it was really slow, but you knew that the, that the shift was happening. Yep. And I will say the biggest mistake that Knowledge and I made back then was we came from idolizing a previous industry. We came from idolizing Rockefeller. We came from idolizing, um, you know, Raucous and Duck Down and like all of. So in our minds, we were trying to be um, that like we were trying to elevate those like, oh, yeah, you want to be like. But it had evolved from that already. Exactly. Yeah, and it so. was evolving under our feet. And yeah. we were looking for something that was already a moving goalpost. Yeah. So that is that we, kind of what you're doing with Red Bull now? You have to, they kind of want you to kind of evolve Red Bull with the changing times as far as the whole cult, like well, having culture, culture in the name? All, culture, has, they've always had a culture department because they've always played well in culture. You know, um, if people are familiar with sort of like Red Bull Music Academy or Sound Clash or... Um, See, I didn't know they were that much into. It. They they do an amazing job with uh, uh, the the extreme world of of like you know like lifestyle stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, to me, like when I when I uh, log onto the app and I see like uh, break dancing and I see like uh, mountain biking, and then uh, you know I got friends who who do uh, DJ battles. It's like yeah. all the cultures there. See, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't even know yeah, that Red Bull encompass so it. much of. Yeah. Yeah, like three style is a big DJ thing that they used to do. Um, Bataya, which we were just talking about, which is an all Spanish speaking battle rap competition. They have the biggest one in the world, BC One, which is the uh, the breakdance competition, one of the biggest, most prestigious in the world. And um, yeah, they've always played in that space because it's one of these brands. A, they they make people jump out of space, so yeah. you have that. But they like to play in subcultures that just need just a little bit of that of that core, if they got a little bit of support, 
it really would take would it be to a the big next thing. level, right? Yeah. And so that's kind of where the, what they're always looking for. They're always looking for these places where it's like, oh yeah, that's oh, so you guys are doing, you know, something I'm looking really forward to doing is like there's a there's a uh, a group of girls from Chicago and New York and Atlanta, black girls skate. And they went on a tour last year, but they're coming on a tour through here this year. And that's like the thing, that's the exact thing that we can come in and support and then yeah. also connect them with some of our, our, you know, professional skaters and get those people to come in. And it really elevates again, um, the community and these, these subcultures. And so it allows me now to, uh, look at the, the industry, the, the people that I have working, uh, I mean, the, you know, the people that I'm constantly sort of rubbing shoulders with and say like, oh yeah, you have this crazy, really cool idea that normally wouldn't happen. Yeah. You know, Coke wouldn't pay for it, but maybe it's a Red Bull can support it in some And we can help get you way. out there and get people yeah, to notice and, you. Yeah, you know, and, and, and figure it out. But, it, you know, you have to have a certain level of scale, obviously. You have to be, you know, the big thing is we don't want to do any we don't ever want to do other people's job. You know, the one thing that I've learned in the industry and in, you know, uh, relationships is that you don't want to be somebody's uh, champion more than they are for themselves sometimes because yeah. you can, they, you know, you'll get frustrated because they're not doing the things you think they should be doing and they'll get frustrating because you keep pushing them to do the do things, things that yeah, they totally. aren't ready to necessarily do Smart yet. words. And so when it comes to Red Bull, right, um, we don't want to get into that sort of relationship. So we're always, um, if you're, you have your thing that's going on that's dope. And you're doing cool, it, yeah. Then we're going to come in and we give you a little, give you some wings and, and there boom, you go. Hell yeah. out of here. Well, Mike, it's been a killer episode, but before we get you out of here, we always uh, hit our guests with a random question. Let's go. Let's so, be more random than where we should be. So Mambo hit him with some, some random question this. It's not that random, but we talked about your, nick, your nickname, Double O, mm -hmm. uh, but I know the family has their own nickname for you. Uh, what does the family call you? I don't know. What does the family call me? Mike? It's just what, Mike. What is? I don't know. Because I, I, I know you shared your, your nickname when we did your episode. Yes. Yeah, and, so. and it is? It's Jay Seals. Jay Seals. So yeah. the family just calls you Mike, that's it? Right? Yeah. That's what I, yeah. I don't, unless I have a nickname that I don't know about. Oh, no, that, I'm asking. I mean, no, I, no, I'm no, we don't. Yeah, we don't. We don't, have a nick, we don't have a nickname for him. Yeah, I don't have one yet. I guess because I, I mean, I don't know. I came in with a rap name already. I yeah, guess. you already got <laughs> your, you already got your name. Double they need to have two. Everyone has two names, though. For they sure. do. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, you, you just you gather all these all these names from from all over the place, and I, it was a topic on the last. Gage uh, doesn't have two names, does he? He doesn't. You know what? Gage does need a. It does need a nickname. And and Gage like, might not. I even feel like persistence cultures should have a nickname for everyone. Seriously, yeah. I think I think it's something that we should get going. I have this weird thing that I don't really have never really officially even told them, so it's kind of like uh, made up nicknames in my head. But so like the three <laughs> owners, like I call them, I call them the three Padres and. Uh, Gage would be the Wadfather, Enrique is the Godfather, and then Christian is the Bodfather, right? Because he's yeah. got the body, Gage does all the wads, and then uh, Enrique is the Godfather that gets us all around the same table like we are today. So, yeah, no, yeah, no, I like so that. So, we'll work on that. We'll work on it. We'll work I'll on get, a nickname I'll get department. Nickname. We'll get I'll, a nickname I'll department going for PC. All right, man. This is a, a dope episode, a little bit over uh, two hours, and uh, I, I, we, I really felt like this could go on a lot oh, longer, yeah. man. We could be here all day. Yeah, yeah unfortunately. We need, to, <laughs> we need to do a part two, man, yeah, because you got, you got stories for days yeah we yeah yeah we will. never we never got to uh we never to even got Steven, to stallone and john rule's house yeah steven seagal i mean yeah so we'll definitely have to pick back up where we left off yeah. 
But uh, Mike, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, man. And uh, just love chopping it up with you anytime I get to, man. Oh, no. Thank you, guys. Yeah, definitely. All right. You guys want to be a part of the Persistence Culture family. Thank you guys for uh, checking us out. Tell your friends about it. Give us a follow on Instagram at Persistence Culture. Keep moving. Follow.